Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Megan Plus TV. I'm Lee, I am here, I am joined by Spencer. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey everybody. Spencer, we are on round two of our newest <laughs> adventure. Um, it's a delving into adaptations of John Grisham novels. Part one, we did The Rainmaker, that's out there now. Check it out, megatalks.com, Captivate, Ghana, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Check it out, we did The Rainmaker. This is round two. We are doing, what are we doing, Spencer? We are doing John Grisham's first novel and his middle-run adaptation, A Time to Kill. So excited about this one. As I have mentioned on this podcast now multiple times, I have gotten into, my latest jag is getting into John Grisham novels. Spencer's nice enough to um, humor me and do John Grisham adaptations on this podcast, but I've been blowing through John Grisham books, and I can tell you that even though it is his first book, even though there's some problematic language in the book, I can tell you that it's my favorite John Grisham book. It is probably one of my favorite non-fantasy worlds of Clanton, Mississippi that he creates here with Jake Brigantz, with Carla, with the whole crew, Ozzy, Sheriff Ozzy, shout out Sheriff Ozzy, always going to vote Sheriff Ozzy, big majorities. Uh, one of my favorite favorite places to, to live. He's since written two more books in that in that space, uh, Sycamore Row, and then uh, uh, last year, A Time for Mercy. Which, um, which, which I did not know. I've not read any John Grisham in probably the last 10 years, and I did not realize that he pretty recently came out with these two sequels. Yeah, um, 2019, Sycamore Row, or no, I think 2000, maybe 11, Sycamore Row, 2012, something like that. And 2020, A Time for Mercy. You should read A Time for Mercy, very good. Sycamore Row, uh, it's a contested will. It gets a little slow, but it's pretty good still. But that is not the issue at hand. The issue at hand right now is A Time to Kill. We are going to talk about, just like we did in part one with The Rainmaker, we're going to talk about the film adaptation. Spencer, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. Spencer will be doing the recap. Shout out Spencer for volunteering to do that. And I will be jumping in. Uh, scholar that I am with book knowledge, and as we go, we will we will piece together the film, connect it to the books, draw some contrast. At the end, we'll kind of do an up or down vote. If you have one chance to take one piece of media, do you take the film? Do you take the book? We will do that up or down vote, and then our last segment will be everybody's favorite game show. A segment of real lawyer, fake lawyer, with our real lawyer Spencer in house, our fake lawyer Lee. That's right, me. And we will play a round of real lawyer, fake lawyer, where we talk about the law and we talk about the law as represented in both the film and the books. Before we get there, Spencer, we do other pods on this podcast. I think the folks want to hear about them. Anything you want to plug? Uh, we do another podcast called Mangum Reads, which is kind of a digital book club where people come together to discuss a book and have quite a fun bit of fun going through it and discussing various questions that our fans may raise. Uh, we are presently going through Agatha Christie. We have done and her great classic, And Then There Were None, moving on to other sense and having quite a bit of fun with it. We also do another podcast called Pottering Around, which is a chapter-by-chapter -chapter recap of Harry Potter. We are midway through the fourth book and having a blast with it as I'm now having my first read of the Harry Potter series, and I hope people enjoy listening as we do it. And we are also going to be releasing a new podcast. If you were ever a fan of our now-defunct podcast, Whiskey on the Weekends, we have a new podcast coming out. We're just going to call it Mangum Talks. It's where the Brain Trust here at Mangum Talks, myself, Spencer, BJ, Levi, all get together to a shared experience, to a shared something, something to yammer about, something to talk. If you like hearing us um, and our hot takes and our issues du jour, definitely check that podcast out. It's a lot of fun. Okay, issue at hand. Time to kill. Any opening thoughts on this book before we jump into the recap, Spencer. Uh, opening thoughts on the book, the film, or both? Uh, yeah, uh, well, that's a good point. Let's do film. I will jump in with book nuggets, and then I'll do a summation of the book uh, film contrast at the end. So yeah, let's do opening thoughts on the film. 
Um, I think it is a better... I think it's an okay film, and I ultimately think it's a better film than it is an adaptation of this book. This is a film which has a very narrow focus on what this book brings. It's a long book. It's got a lot of material in it. And this film only has enough time to focus on certain aspects of it. And I think that it tells a successful enough film for itself, but the adaptation is rather lacking because it ultimately leaves out some of my favorite parts that make A Time to Kill the Book one of my favorites of John Grisham's. I will say this about the film. I, I, I like, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, the, the book is more comprehensive. And it certainly is more comprehensive as it relates to the law and digging into, you know, courtroom drama, trial procedure, um, you know, jury selection, discovery, all those fun things. But the film does a couple things that I think are interesting. And one is just in the casting, because it is the basically our introduction to who is now a national treasurer, who may be the next governor of Texas, if you can fucking believe it. <laughs> Mr. Matthew McConaughey. All right. All right. All right. Himself. That man is uh, presented to him, introduced to America in this film. I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. um, they also bring in Sam Jackson. This is one of Sam Jackson's earlier films, not not his first, but one of his earlier films. Um, it's definitely one of Sandra Bullock's earlier films. Mm -hmm. And um, you also get Kevin Spacey, Ashley Judd, and um, who's the guy who plays Ozzy? I, he's one of these guys that you've seen, you've seen, you've seen. You probably don't recognize the name. We can look him up, but he's in a lot of stuff. Uh, Charles, but, Charles Charles S. Dutton, I think it is. Dutton, there you go. Um, he's in a lot of stuff. But as a, as a cast, I think it is... I'm going to say A plus cast. I mean, it is Star su super, super strong as far as casting goes. Um, and I will say this uh, before we get going. Set in Mississippi, Clanton, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Supposed to have Southern accents here. <laughs> All right. It's we're a gonna, recurring problem with Hollywood. We're going to talk about the Southern accents as we go. But I will say this. I am no way giving a character reference to Kevin Spacey. We all have our problems with Kevin Spacey. Best Southern accent of any non-Southerner I have ever fucking seen. That man, is it, has, he must have been born with it because he was great in House of Cards, but he had that Southern accent locked down in this film. I thought it was super impressive. Uh, he's He was born in New Jersey, so I don't think of the accent as original. That's what I mean. Um, it's like he just, I know. Yeah, a non-Southerner. I don't know how he does it, but it's really, really good. Oh, no. His, of the many fake Southern accents we get in this film, his is are in a way the best, and man, do we also get some bad ones before we're done, too. Hollywood is consistently inconsistent on the subject of Southern accents. Absolutely. All right, so with that, the opening thoughts about the cast. Um, Spencer, do you want to start the recap? Let's start the recap. Well, it started off with just a, an overarching choice with respect to this film as well, is that how familiar are you with Joel Schumacher, the director of this film? Not at all. Uh, I was surprised to see this. Joel Schumacher is... Is a, is a lengthy resume of films. Uh, he has done some good ones. Uh, I'm very fond of Lost Boys, uh, an early vampire film. Oh, he did Lost Boys. Films. I like that he movie. Did, I like Lost Boys. He did Falling Down, which is kind of a which, 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 which is a good film. It's an interesting film. Uh, he did more recently films like Phone Booth, which I thought was a tight enough thriller. Um, he also did both Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Boo. The latter of which is probably one of the worst films of we all time. Terrible. Ugh. I wish you hadn't told me that. Uh, he 
he's an interesting director. He's a mixed bag of director. He ultimately does a different um, John Grisham, where he later does The Client. Uh, well, actually, he did The Client two years before this, I believe. Um, so he's a mixed bag of a director. I also would say that you might say from some of these films we've talked about, yep, you got the client copy right there. I got there. the client right here. That's my next one I'm going to read. Uh, one would not say that he is the most subtle of directors. He doesn't run subtle. He runs rather coarse. It's part of his style. That is apparent in this film and some of the scenes that we see, and we can debate what, how successful that is for this particular adaptation, but we'll talk about that. In terms of the film itself... Oh, before, as we, before we get to the recap, one other thing I want to do, a little asterisk on the pod. Mm. If you read the book, the book was written in 1989. It was written from the perspective of people in rural Mississippi. It deals with race issues. The N-word is ever-present throughout the book. It's a little bit present in the film. Funny little anecdote on that. Mm. You read A Time to Kill, the N-word, probably in there 4,000 times. It's Huckleberry Finn-esque. A Time for Mercy is supposed to be set five years later. It's not supposed to be set in 2020. It's supposed to be set five years later in 1990. The original one's supposed to be set in 1985. Time for Mercy comes out in 2020. It's supposed to be set in 1990. There is a two-sentence blurb at the beginning in Jake's thought thought, where he goes, Oh, yes, the N-word. That word hasn't been prevalent around here in a few years. We really have changed. And he just gives gives you two quick sentences. That Clanton, Mississippi, in the five years to 1985 and 1990 has really gotten by that. Bullshit. The word, the word never appears again. And it Bullshit. is so obvious to me that Grisham is like, I'm not writing that word. In, the- in 2020? <laughs> no. So he just like completely bails well, on it. But it is, it is, you know, look, it's going to make people uncomfortable. But you know, I, you know, it's it's written true to form about the about the time, um, and, and the word is there. The word is there in the film a little bit too. And it's actually one of the things I wanted to start with is the setting of the film, both in the location and the time frame. So I think it's very important, both the book and the film, of where this is very purposely set in the New South. They even use that term a few times in the book, of that this is the new age of the South. This is the new image of the South. This is a South that is growing into modern times. And that tension about what the New South represents and to what degree it is actually separate from its, you know, more dark, darker sides of its history is front and foremost throughout this film and particularly this book in terms of what the New South actually represents and what it actually stands for and to what degree it can divorce itself from its aspects of its negative history. So that is where this occurs in the era it occurs is very important and I'm a little bit disappointed to see that he's to a certain degree whitewashed his most recent adaptation on Nex. That's honestly, honestly that degree of tension, that degree of focus, one of the things I most appreciate about this film in this setting. But Agreed, agreed. Uh, film itself, same as the book, opens with what is a utterly horrendous, terrifying Ugh. graphic series of events. Tough. Of where we get to see two very stereotypical classic rednecks go on a joyride, throw up a whole collection of mischief, demonstrate that they are utter bastards, and then... And fucked up, too. They're, they're very, very drunk and high. Very, very drunk and high, very, very drunk and high, making no effort to hide who they are and the car that they are in as they travel on their joyride through town. Yellow pickup with a Confederate flag in the bed in the windshield, in the back yep. windshield. And while in the process, they see a young girl who is on her way walking back from the store. And I say young, I mean 10 years old. And they, I'm not going to use their actual language because it utterly disgusts me, uh, decide that they are going to kidnap, brutalize, rape and 
To what degree they pondered at the start, I cannot say, but ultimately attempt to murder her. They try to kill her. In the book, it's much more clear than in the film. In the book, they, they absolutely try to kill her. She just happens to live. Yeah, she happens to essentially escape when they're not paying attention kind of thing. Um, it is graphic. It is vile. I honest, I think I prefer how the book does it. And where it's, do, I almost imagine the book version being done perfectly silent and just horrifying and a lot done from her perspective, too. Film is much more coarse about how it goes through. It is fra- framing it from the perspective of the attack rather than necessarily the aftermath of it. What's interesting, she, uh, an interesting c- contrast there is that in the film, you get the perspective from the girl. What, what is her name? Haley. Um, what is her name? The the young girl. Um, it is uh, Tanya, Tanya Haley. Tanya Haley. You get the perspective from Tanya Haley. Obviously, they're not showing the whole thing, but it's kind of like, you know, she's tied down. Camera up. Kinda, camera up. Yeah, camera up. In the book, you're getting a uh, the perspective from the perpetrator. And he's just, it, it's a it's a first person of someone who's like kind of drunk and like doing these things. And, and it's interesting how it's written because it's very casual. Mm-hmm. You yep, know, I, I, in, his, in, the, in the mind of this person, what he's doing is a very, very casual thing, but you're horrified reading it. But anyway, it's a good, it's a different contrast because you get a different POV. And I actually find the book more effectively horrifying because of that, because of just yeah. how almost like newspaper accounting it is in his mind of what is happening. Yeah. It is so sterile, it becomes that much more vile and terrifying just because of how horrific it is. Film is much more coarse, it's much more working off the emotions of the audience in that way, but it's fine, it's a different way to do it. She escapes and during the course of this we really set up several of who are going to be our main characters in this story we set up while all this is happening uh jake brigance who is a who is our hero i suppose at least our protagonist of this story i think he's the hero uh unless i mean unless you want carly haley to be your hero but he's not really mine we're going we're to debate which, which which the film the book want us to want, want us to conclude by the end of that. Um, by the way, the names of the of the perpetrators here: um, James Lewis, Pete <laughs> Willard, and Billy Ray Cobb. Really good white southern red, names. Very good white southern redneck names. Ooh, yeah, throw that word out there. Get them, get them, Spencer. I, I think that that is that is a word that the film the, the film particularly wants us to have when it thinks that these two guys. Of. Uh, so our main character, our protagonist, is Jake Brigance. He is a young Southern lawyer in Clinton, in Clinton, Mississippi, who is essentially inherited a practice from a more established judge, a more established attorney, uh, Luther, I believe his name is, right? Do I have that right? Lucian, Lucian, Lucian Wilbanks. Right. Lucian Wilbanks, who was played by a, Donald Sutherland in the movie. I thought that was very interesting casting. It is interesting casting. He brings a lot. He brings a nice swagger to the role. I like that we get two Sutherlands in this film before we're done. Yeah, yeah, that you could tell they just had a good time filming it together. Yeah, they did. Uh, he is an attorney that is really still trying to find his feet in many ways. It has been relatively recently that he has effectively inherited this practice as a result of his mentor being disbarred, um, and he's kind of struggling on the business side of things. But he's got a young family. He's enjoying himself. He's not really sweating the details. There's a certain impression that he's not the most serious character, at least at the start of this story. Meanwhile, we also have, um, well, we can go through his associates, too. We have his secretary, who's always been one of my favorite characters, both in the book and film, um, where she is the classic old woman secretary that is the, only, the one that's really responsible for keeping this practice actually afloat. Yeah. You know, it's interesting how, 
I think back then, up until pretty recently, you would call that person the secretary. But in, in effect, she's she's much more than that because she runs the fi- she manages the finances right. of the of the firm. So she's, she's really, his only she's, staff. Yeah, so she's really more like a like a like a firm manager or something like that. Uh, Ethel, right? Like Ethel, I, I yeah, I, that's her name. Yeah, Ethel, right? He has a friend who's played by uh, Oliver Platt, I believe, in the Harry film. Harry Rex right. Vaughner, my guy. Yeah. My favorite character. You, I always you, pick a favorite character. Last time it was, it was Danny DeVito's character. Yeah. This time, I'm, I'm spoiling it for everybody, tipping my hand. My favorite character, my guy, the real MVP, Harry Ricks Vonner. Love this dude. He, he, he fits a role that I, I think just is very near and dear to John Grisham's heart of where he is the unethical drunk attorney. There always has to be one in every film. <laughs> uh, He's the best, Harry Ricks. He, he's a delight, and Oliver Platt plays him very well about where he is the attorney that is just open about the fact that he is running his business on the dregs of society. He's been an opponent of our main character, Jake Briganson, several times, but the two of them are close friends. Question for you on here on Oliver Platt as Harry Rex Bonner. Mm-hmm. Do you think he got cast as um, in, the, in the West Wing because of his role here? Because I feel like his role in the West Wing is exact. He just plays Harry Rex in the West Wing, except he happens to be like I guess the Attorney General. He, he plays Oliver Babish, right, in the West Wing. I think. Yeah. That, so that's not. He's not the Attorney General in the West Wing. He's the, um, the White, White House, House Counsel. Yeah. yeah. But he just seems uh, like the same sort of like quick talking, no bullshit. You know, kind of know it all lawyer with a troubled personal life. <laughs> he is those things, Oliver Babish. He's also a much more clean-cut figure in terms of serving as White House counsel, but I believe it is perfectly possible that he got name recognition from this role to get to that one. Yeah. Um, our other main character, at least particularly this early in the story, is Carl Lee Haley. Um, we don't... I think it's kind of true book and show that we don't get as much of an impression or much time with his character necessarily as we do with the other ones, but from what we see of him, he is a devoted family man, he is a hard worker... He's a veteran. That's what I think that's brought up more in the book than it is in the film. Vietnam veteran, right? Which informs his choice of weaponry and even the contacts that help him get the gun in the book. Yeah. yeah. Um, and is immediately... Samuel L. Jackson does a great job of being... This is an odd thing to say about Samuel L. Jackson, but he's a surprisingly good job of being subtle with the emotions here in the early film of his reaction to what has happened and his processing of what has happened. Until they give him that cartoonish line, yes, they deserve to die and I hope they burn in hell. I hate that line. I, there's a lot about the end of this trial we're going to discuss that I don't particularly like very much. I think that's Joel Schumacher's coarseness that's coming out too much. Um, we get to see him process and play out what has happened to his daughter coping with that at the same time as we see the actual proper authorities go about their immediate investigation there is no doubt in their mind who did this and they find them right away and as you noted we get to meet our wonderful sheriff of this county the recently elected ozzy walls sheriff ozzy walls that's right ladies and gentlemen elected twice in clanton mississippi overwhelming majorities over 95% of the black population, over 60% of the white population, as detailed in the book. Ozzy Walls is a very, very popular sheriff of Clanton, Mississippi. And he's a bigger, I'd say he's a bigger character in the book than he is in the film. He still functions a lot in the film, but he's more just a kind of a means to an end at several times. What he represents, though, is, and what a lot of the, you know, proper white members of society point him out as, is that he's an example of how far the South has come. He's a representative of the New South. Hey, look, we've all come together to elect a popular black sheriff. 
So he's an important figurehead in that regard, along with just being a very good guy and competent at his job. And I just want, you know, when you when you see Ozzy operating, just remember that this is a guy who in 1985 got 60% of the white vote in his county. So yes. he didn't get that by running around and yelling, you know, black power, right? Like he, he is very calculated in how he deals with certain situations. And he, in the book, it's detailed... And I think you get I think you get enough of it in the film to know it's true. He is outraged by what has happened here. But he is not gonna just like take these two boys, these two white boys, and just throw them to the mob. Because, you no. know, first off, he, he's a lawyer and he takes his job very seriously. But second, like he he he's has a sheriff. A, he's a sheriff. A, sorry, sorry, sheriff. But he has a relationship with the white community. A lot of these rednecks who support Pete Willard and Billy Ray Cobb actually voted for Ozzy. Yeah, and they even, they even very clearly say that in the film, in a scene I like, of where after they arrest these two guys at a bar, because they've still got one of her freaking shoes in the bed of their truck. And blood, it is, and they are sloppy. dead to rights, and always utter piece of shit slime. They resist arrest, which gives Ozzy a bit, of, a bit of an opportunity to enjoy himself with his two deputies. They arrest them, and then I love the scene that we note of when they've got one of them in the hold, and they're just starting to do the initial you know interrogation of him. Of where one, I don't remember which one it is, but it's one of the, one of these two um, suspects. Or it's Billy Ray. Billy Ray. It's Billy mm-hmm. Ray. Uh, st- tells him that my mom voted for you, which, yep. as you noted, is representative of just how cross-cutting Ozzy Wells is in terms of representing the whole community and bringing them all together. Because the I book love- has different POVs. It's not like the Rainmaker. Rainmaker was one POV all the way through. You get yep. Ozzy's POV, and you get. I, I don't mean this in a negative way at all. But you do get some political calculation from Ozzy as he's oh, navigating yeah. this situation, which, which I think I is just realistic, right? It has to be. I mean, the role of a sheriff is similar as the role as a prosecutor. For you are a political figure as much as you are an officer of the court or, or a law enforcement official. You have a job of, of representing the community that voted for you and representing them in, in, with respect to that issue as well. So, yeah, he is calculating because he has to be. He's a sheriff. Um, but one thing I love there, it's referencing that scene, we see it too in the book as well. Is I love how much these utter monsters of individuals are afraid. I love just how much they are just shaking and terrified once they've actually been caught and once they're once they're being arrested and uh, investigated. I think the book even talks about how much how utterly terrified they are as they're being taken out of the courtroom before a key moment here happens in a few seconds. Yeah. I like that aspect of where these ju- these two aren't swaggering; they are just terrified little cowards as a result of now. The, Full scale of them actually suffering repercussions from what they did is brought foremost. Now, I don't um, think we, we, you know, I know, I know you probably didn't want to harp on it, but what happens to Tanya? She is beaten, she's raped, she's yeah. urinated on, and she's thrown from a bridge in the book. Um, yeah. So I, just, I, you know, I know that, like, super blunt, but, like, I just wanted to, like, point out, like, it, it, he, he writes as horrific of a thing as can happen to a 10-year-old uh, as possible. Absolutely. We, we, I think we find that out in the closing argument. It's the first time it really comes up. is clearly spelled out in the film. But in the book, it is abundantly apparent in the coldest fashion possible early on that this is an unimaginable crime. This is a crime that can scarcely even be conceptualized, much less written in by even in a newspaper account as to what occurred to this poor girl. Yep. In a way that is going to have lasting effect. I mean, two of the things that really play a key role in what ultimately factors into Carly Haley's decision is how permanently she is going to be damaged and harmed as a result of this, which in the film we find out a little bit more later of where she will never be able to bear children. She will never be able to function in that way as a result of what occurred to her. 
And his knowledge that even though this is the New South, whatever else, he knows about a case a few years back of where four white, white boys raped a black girl. And for some reason or other, and it's not really explained, they got off. And in the night, he actually goes to his friend, Jake Brigantz, because Jake previously represented his brother, and straight up asks him that question. His Did brother, Lester Haley, yeah, who yeah. Um, also, um, I think Lester uh, killed someone in, I think, a vehicular accident, yeah. and, and Jake got him off. Yeah, it's important to note that Jake has handled various forms of homicide cases before. Not, I don't think, solo, or or at least not anywhere near this level. But he has experience to a certain degree in this field. Um, so Carl Lee talks to Jake that evening, because the two of them know each other, the two of them have spoken before, even had friendly relations, because I think it was a little bit of a surprise that Jake agreed to take that case and help out the family. And I think it'd be fair to say that Carl Lee does everything but outright tell him that he is going to try to murder those two boys. And Jake reads that pretty accurately and needs to decide what he's going to do with that information. Ding, ding, ding. First time I'm going to step in and ask Spencer what he would do if he was Jake Brigance. We're going to get this a lot in this pod. Spencer, as a practicing attorney, someone comes to you, a brother of a former former client. He gives you as much of an indication as Samuel L. Jackson does in his role of Carly Haley that he's going to kill somebody. What do you do? Tell him that he, tell him that he absolutely can't do that. that. He needs to wait for justice to occur. That he need that, it, that this will only make things worse for everybody else, for everybody involved, including his own family and the community. And if I'm not in any way convinced that he's going to move away from that purpose, I call the sheriff and ask for additional protection. That's the question I I, I figure out because he you know Jake very strikingly in the movie in the book does hears this from Carly. Carly's basically lining up his defense attorney because he's already knows he, what he's going to he, do. Will you represent me? I think he even says that. Yeah, you, yeah you're going to get me off like you got Lester off, Jake. And Jake does not call the sheriff, does not tell anyone other than his wife. Despite, and despite I the fact thought, his wife tells him to do it. And I thought that was a big mistake, personally. I, I think that was a mistake not only for him, but for Carl Lee. That... Carly's not in a not in a position right now to make rational decisions because oh is he insane? Is he insane? <laughs> no, not in any legal sense. We'll talk about that shit. Um, he is in a state that no person could ever you know just imagine how they would function being in. He's in the utmost extreme state that a person could ever possibly be in. He effectively, in many ways, needs to be protected from himself in this particular moment. And the thing that Jake could do in that regard would notify the sheriff and impose increased protection. Such so a good that, point, Spencer, that, that actually, you know, I was thinking of it completely from the perspective of just what you should do as a lawyer, you know, like what, what you should do, like morally. But you're right. He could have he could have actually protected Carl Lee there. That's a very good point. That, I mean, that's almost my, almost, my, almost my main perspective on it. It's a perspective you have, you have to just continually fight with when it comes to this film about how ultimately the two victims that are really being addressed as the subject of the trial in the story are not Carl Lee's poor daughter it's the two guys that he ends up murdering who were the most vile sons of bitches that you could ever possibly paint in literature and what we need to do about that and how we need to view that um so after this conversation with jake after this conversation with jake we we go to we go to early proceedings in court film cuts out a few events that kind of lead up to this moment that just even further just prove the amount of premeditation that Carl Lee's bringing to these events. He actually goes to a former, to a guy he served in Vietnam with who is now yep. a pretty sketchy entrepreneur businessman <laughs> in Memphis. 
of um, any kind of thing you need to buy. Yeah, almost like a um, like a bruiser type, uh, not yeah. a lawyer, but like kind of in that same vein. Um, and asks for a very specific gun and gets it delivered to him. Yeah. Um, I ask you, to what degree did Jake telling him that it's possible that these guys could go free based on that prior case and that I would represent you or would help defend you in some ways help inform his decision? Or is it just, or that, that decision's already in motion regardless? I tend to think he was going to do it regardless in the book because at, when he talked to Jake, he had already been the guy, got the gun. Now, I, I, do, I think that that is further evidence that Jake did not play this correctly, right? Yeah. Like, you know, he, I'm not sure that he like tipped the scale to make Carly do it. I think Carly was going to do it anyway. But I do think he gave him some like buffers and support in doing so unknowingly, but he did so. And he's warned about this effectively by his wife, by who's played by, I believe, Ashley Judd in the film. Uh, she straight up tells him to go tell the police and he agrees. But he doesn't. Yeah, his uh, wife, um, oh, what's her name? Carla? I'm pretty sure it's Carla. Carla. Um, going to say this about Carla. Um, highest batting average for being right of anyone in this novel. When, when yeah. Jake, you have so many scenes where Jake's like, hey, let me just toss this around with Carla. Carla bats like 98% in being yeah. right. And this is one thing that's really true with um, lawyer wives, even if they aren't lawyers themselves. They get really good at either just good advice or even understanding the law, because good God, do we all talk to our wives about everything that we go through in a given day or get at work. Mm -hmm. um, but we cut to the courthouse. The two of them are at their initial hearing. That uh, bail is being set. And what's important, I think the book even brings this out a lot more than the film really does, is how... Everyone in the town is kind of on the same page when it comes to these guys. Everyone in town is horrified. The newspapers are publishing accounts that they need to be strung up. Everyone is on play when it comes to these guys need to be punished for this crime. And that's an important background. Because after the initial hearing, Carly, who was hiding in a, a, a dark part of the a, a dark room or even like a closet maybe of the courthouse. Yeah, closet, yeah. Busts out, M16 in hand, because he's a prior Vietnam vet. He knows how to use one. Not particularly well. <laughs> uh, well, he... Uh, I mean, he, I, I, particularly they show this in the film. Man's just shooting from the hip spraying when yeah, it comes Jesus, to these guys. Man, come on. Like, it makes my aim. Pull my aim here. And film almost wants to emphasize the fact that he is in one hell of an emotional state in this given moment. They focus on his eyes quite a bit. He charges out. He sprays the two of them, and in the process of spraying them, seemingly almost indifferent in that given moment, he also hits the deputy at least once. Yeah, what's the deputy's name? Uh, it's played by Chris Cooper. Dwayne Looney. Dwayne Looney. Looney, that's right. Yeah, he hits Looney in the leg. Um, uh, blows his leg. kneecap off in the film, yeah. Yeah, Looney's leg is later, later amputated. Uh, right. Dead from the knee down. Which Now, in the book, not... when Carly busts out, he's laughing maniacally. I think yes. that's an important detail. It is. Uh, that's one thing that's commented on by Looney's testimony in the book. Um, he does this. He drops the gun. He runs away. Everyone's kind of there to see this. Even Jake's present at the time to observe this straight up happen, or at least observe the two of them guys be murdered. It's wild, it's in, yeah. It's in front of the entire community that's having this. There is no doubt in everybody's minds as to what just occurred, surprising though it was. And so when JFK's assassin got shot. 
It was like in front of everybody. Oh like, yeah, in front like, of the, very similar, right? Like walk, like a procedural sort of walking from the courthouse this, and just gets this popped. Is, this is very much a, a, a Jack Ruby killing Lee Harvey Oswald moment. That's very accurate. And I think it's very intentional on the part of both the writer and the director and how this is set up. This immediately leads things to just spiral out of control even more than they otherwise were. So one of the first things that happened is that Jake is specifically invited and called in by Carl Lee to ask him whether he will be his attorney. And I ask you, sir. Under those kind of circumstances, would you agree to represent him if you were an attorney in Jake Berganza's situation? So no, considering the fact that Carly had came to him beforehand and said, I'm going to do this thing and will you represent me? Smart man. Yeah, I would not have done it. However, I will say this. Uh, In the book, they take great pains to show that their their public defender in Clinton, Mississippi is um, basically like a high schooler. And there is really no one else in the county who has ever dealt with an actual uh, capital uh, murder trial. Yeah. So yeah. Jake is kind of the only game in town for that deal. Right. The film, by necessary just limitations of the screen and time, has to cut out a lot of the procedural aspects that go into the case and the trial and the setup and everything else. This is another example of that, of where he's almost browbeat to a certain degree in terms of doing it, just because, as you noted, there's nobody else that can. Yeah. Whereas the film really much focuses on his own individual guilt, I think, in terms of motivation for why he's there. Yep. So that's one thing that happens. The other thing is that outside forces start to pay attention. One of those outside forces is the is the NAACP, which see it does not. They don't honestly. The NAACP does not come across very well in this film. Uh, they see no, an opportunity. They see an opportunity to make this case of national importance and effectively, in terms of the interpretation by Jake Brigance, make a martyr of Carl Lay. And so they start to come in in terms of their outside influence. What we also see is an organization which has not previously been present in Clanton, Mississippi for some time, maybe even a generation. KKK is, by invitation, coming back into town. Uh, upon invitation, I think it is of, it's, remind me, is Kiefer Sutherland playing their friend or their brother? So is a is a is a, a brother of one of a Billy Ray. Yeah. And he is not in the clan when the the incidents mm. occur. Clan doesn't what exist in town. Is he he has a friend who knows some clan members. And at the time, you know, there was a thought that the clan was kind of in 1985 apparently clan Mississippi there was this idea that uh, the clan the clan was gone. And no one had seen them in a long time. There were just whispers in bars that they still existed. Well, anyway, Gether Sutherland's friend taps into the clan, which is in an adjoining county, comes over, and actually makes them clan members. Um, right. All the people Stun- who were upset about this this murder of Billy Ray um, makes them clan members, and boom, they're off to the races. Yeah, Stump Sisson is, I believe, the grand dragon of the entire Mississippi KKK, and he comes personally into town. Played by, uh, it's a very recognizable actor. Who, who's, who plays him again? Um, it's, 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 it's red from that 70s show. Uh, it is Kurtwood Smith. Good actor. Um, he comes in, as you said, he basically forms a new chapter of the KKK operating in town, and they decide, other outside influence, that they're going to make something of this as a representative of the threat that the white man is under as a result of these kind of things. Uh. Yeah, it's, it's a big thing in the film, a big thing in the book, too. Um, 
those two things build up in their own degree of tensions that are occurring throughout the trial. Might as well discuss them to a certain degree now. Of where one of the things that happens early is that there's a certain degree of difficulty that Carl Lee works the job at a, uh, it's like a wood processing plant kind of thing. Lumberyard, lumberyard. Lumberyard. Uh, he loses that job almost immediately because he's out of work for five days. And Low-key, one of the things that enraged me about yeah. this, he is arrested. He's still in prison. I don't think he's even been arraigned yet. It's five days later, and they, they, they cut him loose. Yeah. Unbelievable. Bernie Sanders, get down to Clanton, Mississippi. <laughs> let's let's, let's I, do some stiddies. I, I, think the, I think the implication is that they're just trying to avoid any of the negative press of having him on the payroll and are just kind of quietly get rid of him and all the all the publicity that comes with it um he, uh factoid from a time for mercy carl lee gets that job back just letting everybody know all right <laughs> did, did not know that i'm learning things um he cannot really afford to pay jake but jake says this case is probably going to cost fifty thousand dollars in terms of representation so this is a question i have for you jake in the book says he's never really worked by the hour. He's not a, he's not a Spencer level attorney. He's on he, his own. He, he throws just, out numbers. Yeah. So he, when he, that, that, yeah, exactly. That's my question. When he says this is going to cost $50,000, he's just like finger in the air, right? Like he has no fucking idea what they're charging. I mean, he does, he's never done this before and he doesn't charge by the hour. No, I mean, he's a, he's a classic retainer kind of attorney. My dad was a similar kind of attorney to this of where he did. It's not, it's not what it's going to take. It's just what it costs. And he just says an amount and you, and you either pay it or you don't. That, that's how, that's how Jake works on price in nature. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And, so 50,000 is a figure that he just kind of pulls out of the air. Maybe it's a reasonable enough approximation for what his actual cost will be. It isn't dear God. It isn't. Um, no, but regardless, Carl Lee cannot afford to pay it. I think he says he can pay 10 and I think that's utterly not true either. As it turns out either. Can't get an extra loan in his house because the bank won't give him a loan because he won't be there to be able to repay it. He'll only be able to put together a limited amount of funds. The church comes together to quote-unquote support him under the encouragement of the NAACP, but what that support is actually uh, tied to is that the NAACP wants to bring in outside counsel to help out. They want to bring in the murder squad. Some experienced attorneys that only handle murder cases and have done a lot of work for the NAACP, NAACP before to take over for Jake. Because from their perspective, Jake is an attorney who's operating on his own, has very little experience when it comes to this, and is plainly in over his head. So I'd like to point out something here. Um, a dynamic at play here that I find very, very interesting. I'd like your opinion on So we all hear about the great work that the NAACP has done as traveling attorneys going to represent people who don't have proper representation in civil rights matters or issues that touch race, right? Um, Now, in the book, it is explained that while some of the adjoining counties around Clanton, Mississippi are predominantly black, this one is predominantly white. It's about 65 to 70% white. It's about Mm -hmm. 20%, 25%. Um, African-American. So um, what I think Grisham is trying to show here is a dynamic of, yes, you have these NAACP uh, lawyers who mean well. I think I think the lawyers themselves mean well. I'm not sure that the, pre- the preacher does, who's the facilitator. I think the lawyers do. They show up. But I think maybe what what, the, what Grisham is giving us is, is a scenario where maybe when we've heard that these NAACP lawyers who are, you know, mythical, right? You know, some of these guys are, are, are heroes. Maybe coming and tr- to, maybe sometimes it's not good considering 
the context of the local politics. Because I think mm-hmm. what Grisham is trying to tell us here is that these hotshot NAACP uh, you know, folks coming in, they're likely going to deal with a majority white um, jury are not are not going to be the best representatives of Carl Lee here. And I, I maybe I'm belaboring the point, but I found it interesting because I never really thought through, you know, maybe sometimes when those NAACP lawyers get dispatched to a case, mm-hmm. maybe that's not good considering the local politics. Maybe you need a local guy to try to convince that jury, especially if it's you're likely going to get a predominantly white jury. That's all. Well, no, I think it's a perfectly reasonable point to bring up. And I think it's an interesting thing to debate because from a positive standpoint, they're providing representation that otherwise practically may not exist, or at least the accused would not be able to afford, uh, which is definitely a concern that's at play here. I mean, they're agreeing to cut their $100,000 fee in the late late 80s, early 90s to $7,000, which is going to be paid for by other people. It's an incredibly generous offer. They're experienced attorneys when it comes to this issue, but as you note... They're outsiders and what is increasingly going to be where that's increasingly going to be a very relevant question to ask. Yeah, it's like, you know, I kind of was asking myself, I was like, I, I know this is not great. I know this, this is not a perfect world, but maybe in Clinton, Mississippi, Carly needs a white lawyer. Like, may, maybe that's important, right? Because like, you know, you're going to get a local. Like, a local, yes, somebody who, you know, Grisham takes great pains to show that Jake like goes to the same breakfast you know, diner as everyone else. And he's one of the guys, one of the local yeah. guys. Heck, heck, he knows like half the people on the jury personally. Um, which, and, and, which he, I, and they, yeah, they have trouble getting, they have trouble uh, filtering the jury for people who don't know Jake because Jake is that known in the community. Yep, absolutely. Um, what this is ultimately spun in is a, is a lovely, lovely demonstration that Carl Lee is no man's fool, is that effectively he sets this up as a way of getting Jake paid. Of where he arranges the NAACP to be there to talk about the $5,000 they've raised, talk about the 2000 the church has raised for his family, which they actually apparently meant for his legal defense, to then say, well, thank you for raising that money. If you would kindly issue a check to my attorney right here, Jake. It's a very yeah. smart move on his part to, in terms of getting that arranged and paid. Very different in the book. Book Carly actually does flip and wants the NAACP Which representation. Which you cannot blame him for. He fires Jake at one point, um, and his brother comes back down. Um, uh, Lester Haley comes back down from Chicago and uh, basically browbeats uh, Carly into convincing um, into convincing Carly to rehire Jake. But you're, the, you know, that's a, this is another thing where you know you that that gets displayed in the book and in the the movie in a way that makes me slightly uncomfortable which is the the black preacher who's predatory in the situation who's actually trying to pocket the money yeah yeah that one's tough for me because like you know obviously you know rural south black preacher plays a huge part in the community but obviously these things do happen and it's just sort of a tough representation of that type of archetype yeah, abso- absolutely. Uh, I, I think this is a fair summary to say that I think that in terms of overall character, both Carl Lee and Jake come across as cleaner and a little bit more pristine in the film than they do in the book. I think they're both coarser and more complicated characters when it comes to how they're portrayed in the book, at least with respect to their character. Yeah. Um, two other th- uh, Building up to the trial, two other things that happened is two other legal players entered the scene that play a very, well, three other legal players entered the scene that play a very key role going forward. One is who is going to be our main opponent. We have Rufus Buckley, who is going to be leading the prosecution. 
If you were to summarize Rufus Buckley's character, who is played in wonderful swaggering fashion with, you said, the single best Southern accent in the film by Kevin Spacey, how would you summarize his character? Um, I would say that he is a pompous, Mm -hmm. he's knowledgeable, capable, pompous, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, Unethical? Uh, yeah, he's slightly unethical, but he's also very ambitious. Uh, Absolutely, as well. ambitious is the key thing to represent him because he sees this not only as you know his duty as a prosecutor to ensure that justice is fulfilled. He sees this as a political opportunity for him. And I'll That's tell it. you, one of my favorite fucking things of the book and the film is that Jake burns him by calling him governor, governor, over, and over again. Hilarious. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great touch. It shows a lot of the theatrics that Jake engages in throughout the case. Uh, he immediately sets on that he is not only going to try this guy, he's not going to convict him, he is going for murder one, and he's going to ensure that he goes to the gas chamber. As an attorney myself, I would have, if I was his second, I would have strongly advised him to not overreach when it came to this case, but it is not in Rufus Buckley to not reach as far as he can at every given moment. It is in character for him to do so. Rufus Buckley enters this this story with confidence at an all-time high. Absolutely. He sees this as a slam dunk. He sees this as an opportunity to build himself a statewide reputation. He sees this as his political moment to come. It's not it's, As much as he trumpets that justice must be fulfilled, this is about him in terms of his initial motivations that are going into play here. Um, I think, honestly, he comes across even worse in the book than he does in the film. Uh Another character that now enters the scene that's going to play a key role going forward is played by the lovely Sandra Bullock, Ellen Rourke. <laughs> Spencer, you want to you want to die you want to give a little diatribe into your thoughts on Sandra Bullock? I've I've had a crush on Sandra Bullock for a very long time, and this film just hammers that home. She is at, <laughs> she she does a wonderful job acting in the role. She's no, she's a wonderful actress, but she's also a cutie, and this film represents that too. <laughs> Uh, but her character is coming in as very much a different kind of mindset and a different kind of background than anybody else in the story. She is from Boston. She is the daughter of a very distinguished attorney. She is went to Old Miss out of tradition, but otherwise she's very much has an Ivy League feel. She's incredibly experienced. She's incredibly knowledgeable. She's incredibly intelligent. She's very much an ACLU background. She's worked on far more murder cases than Jake ever has. And she is his godsend to have the slightest hope in hell of actually succeeding in this case. And she's there because she's morally opposed to the death penalty. And she has witnessed executions um, as part of um, being being part of the uh, defenses um, of people who are facing the death penalty. Uh, Her name, Ellen Rourke. Um, Also pronounced. When she crosses the line into Mississippi, Ellen Roark. Which is so accurate. I love that so much. Just a great detail. You can tell Grisham has spent time in the South. Oh, yeah. He's from there. Um, she, As you said, she's coming here from her own very much personal motivations, but she is an essential element to this case that Jake otherwise lacks because Jake is a very experienced trial and case attorney in terms of being in front of a jury. He's got a lot of background there, well, a lot of good training when it comes to that. Jake is not so big on the whole, you know, legal research and motion practice thing. Mm-mm. That's not Jake's forte. It is, on the other hand, hers to a T. And very early on, she tries to effectively both persuade and insert herself into the case by providing Jake necessary bits of legal citation and advice that he otherwise would have gotten himself screwed on if he didn't have. 
So in the now, book, Ellen is a third year law student. She's not actually yeah. a lawyer yet. And Jake in his, you know, we get POVs from Jake in his internal monologue. He points out multiple times that she writes briefs better than he ever could. And he's, he doesn't want to tell her that he like, he plays it cool when he gets her briefs uh, and her research, but he's like, yeah, she, she can put together details in a way that it, it, he, she's better at that than Jake is already. Is, is she a graduate yet in the movie? I don't, I think she's still, they don't make very clear in the movie what exactly her position or context is. She seems to have a lot of spare time for a student, but who the hell knows? I'm not really sure in the movie, but in the book, yeah. she's definitely a third year law student. She's done enough work with the ACLU. I think the film may imply that she's actually recent, at least maybe a recent graduate, but it's not entirely clear. Right. Um, book, Jake, I'm pretty sure gets her into the case pretty quick because he sees that she is an essential element to the case. Film, they draw it out a little bit of where he seems pridefully kind of resisting her advice and resisting at least formally adding her into the proceedings. Yep. So she's a ne very necessary element. We're going to see their relationship going forward. Another third element is, as you mentioned before, Lucian Wilbanks, Donald Sutherland, who is the very experienced man behind the man for Jake during the course of a lot of, the, a lot of this case. Um, well, he is a good and proper drunk. Um, Lucian absolutely. Wilbanks in the book is portrayed as a active, 100% full-on, committed career alcoholic. I'm talking like drinking whiskey on the porch at 9 a.m. type of guy. Yeah, and it's not suggested this is necessarily a new thing. He hasn't necessarily just, like, picked pick this up since leaving the practice of the law. Because he was disbarred in recent years due to engaging in a bit, a bit too much personal protesting when it came to some of his cases. Um, this has been a long-term aspect to his character and practice of the law. But he is, by a certain stretch, a functioning alcoholic and still has a hell of a lot of, of, of good wisdom to bring to bear for Jake. And Jake frequently goes to him for advice, for better or for ill, for how some things ultimately play out. Um, in terms of actually setting up the proceedings themselves, which I think are important, there's two key, there's three key aspects that are really going into getting this case ready for trial. Issue number one, venue. Uh, how much did you understand the venue issue when you were originally reading this book? I understood, it very, I understood it very well because Grisham takes a lot of time with it, more so than the movie does. Yep. Um, you know, Jake struggles with the lawyer or the, the judge, Judge Noose. Um, Perfectly shout named. <laughs> shout out Judge Noose in the book, though. I love the character. I think he's he's a great, like he's, he's a good example of like how someone can kind of flounder and then get into a role of authority and actually thrive because he has a... In the book, he's, he's not like a really successful lawyer before he becomes a judge, but he becomes a judge. He takes it very seriously, and I think he does a pretty good job, all things considered. Anyway, think Judge Noose does not want to change the venue. Absolutely. And it is, it is very important in the book that Jake does because he thinks there's two things. First, like I mentioned before, they are in a predominantly white county in Mississippi surrounded by predominantly black counties. So Jake wants to move in the hopes that he might get a majority, uh, my, you know, African-American majority black um, jury in a different county. He's not probably in all likelihood not going to get it in Clanton, Mississippi. And number two is every fucking person is talking about this case. Yeah. And they which, think that they can't get a jury that isn't already biased. Right. And that second issue, which really isn't discussed at all in the film, 
is honestly the much better legal grounds to have the case transferred and probably a much more probably it would have been a very valid reason for the judge to have ordered the case to be transferred just practically speaking there's no way that anybody is going to be unbiased when it comes to this case in this particular county oh yeah the first reason is not a not a not a real reason to change it it's just yeah. a strategy the second one's a real reason but you know judge news comes back in the book and he basically says i agree with you jake there is no way that we can get an impartial jury in this county. But what I say to you is that there's no way we can get an impartial jury in any county in this state because of how public and how popular and how right. you know mainstream this, this case has become. Which, you yes. know, eh, if you agree, you don't agree, whatever. It's, it's an it, argument. It's a, fair, it's a fair enough point. There's a lot of judge discretion that goes into the issue anyway. As things ultimately play out, I think it further demonstrates that they really would have been wise to move this to a different county and possibly bring this under federal jurisdiction. But... Whatever. Um, that's one key issue that comes up early. Jake ultimately loses that motion, but Roark plays a key bit of work in terms of <laughs> nice. keeping, the, keeping the issue alive in terms of some very important case citations about the judge can't summarily deny a motion to transfer venue on a murder case. Can't do that. There's a lot of improper issues there. You need to actually consider the motion before he denies it. So, Which in the uh, book, he Ro Roark writes that all up. The, the, so Noose goes, no. And Jake goes, well, you can't really just say no, you have to consider it. And Judge New says, okay, come back tomorrow. <laughs> says no. <laughs> okay, thank you, Your Honor. <laughs> so that, that's, one, that's one key legal issue that goes into really setting up the case. And it's a very important legal question to originally address. Uh, second legal issue that heavily goes into play is who is now going to be the jury? Uh, this, I think the book spends a significant amount of time on the film does not, which I found understandable, though ultimately very disappointing, because I actually really love the jury setup that we get in the book for just how much time is spent into the thought process that goes into it and the shenanigans that are in that. As a non-lawyer, I'll tell you what I learned from the book. I did. I knew that jury selection was a big deal. Obviously, I'm, mm. I'm not that ignorant. But I did not know that when they get a the potential pool of jurors, they get a list that you can actually do research on those individuals. You cannot contact them. Remember mm -hmm. from the Rainmaker, you cannot contact them directly. That is a no, no, no. But you can do research on them. And some even skirt the lines by doing a little bit of private investigation of them in so long as that person's never actually physically contacted. I did not know, like in the, in the, in the book, they represent that Jake and Ellen, and by the time they get to jury selection, know the names, the history, mm -hmm the employment, and all these other facts that they're able to be, you know, every single person in that potential jury pool, they've memorized them all mm -hmm. to prepare. I mean, that level of detail, I just did not know that that, that trial lawyers went to. And it was, what? you know, if that's true, and I'm, I'm sure it is, it's astonishingly impressive to me. It, it definitely happens. It definitely also does not happen in every case, just because there is a fundamental lack of resources and time necessary to bring that about. Often there's a lot of voir dire that actually happens in the courtroom itself of you asking them questions and getting that, getting that kind of information just there on the fly. One thing that also plays out very clearly in the book, and it's also shown in the film, is your right as an attorney to strike certain jurors, basically without explanation. That you get a few just strikes that you get just as a matter of course. What are those guys, what are the names of those? I'm blank. I'm blanking as to the term right now. I'm disappointed that I couldn't remember. It'll, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll come, look up. Come, come to me in a minute. But you, yeah. you get a few that are for cause, and you get a few that are much more voluntary in terms of just one amount that you get. In the book, they make a much more clear fact of the fact that um, our opposing counsel um, 
Mr. Buckley is just very much striking every single black person that he possibly can on the jury. <laughs> every single one is stricken as, just as a matter of course. That probably wouldn't fly nowadays. That would probably, you know, provide grounds for appeal uh, just out of just racial bias that's going into the jury makeup. But, yeah. Peremptory challenge. Thank you. Um, that's where the, that's the, the type of challenge where you can just say, I just don't like the cut of that guy's jib. And you yeah, can do I, it without cause. You typically get a set number of them. How many you get varies on jurisdiction, and you don't really have to explain yourself. If you ultimately strike all black people from a jury as a prosecutor, you're ultimately going to have to explain that because... Well, you get voted out usually, yeah. You, know, you have to get voted out or the case gets overturned for you, for you doing a racial bias when it came to jury selection, which you're not allowed to do. Buckley does not give much of a shit about that. Yeah, he fucking does it with pretty blatantly, yeah. Which honestly would provide grounds for Jake to appeal, but he's not really thinking about that at a given time. We'll come address that later. Jake also um, has some bad luck. I mean, he, you know, basically, you know, in the jury pool, he's got like, let's say 30% African-Americans, mm-hmm. but who they pull, they pull like the first 15 are white. So it's like, it's just bad luck. If you're trying to get blacks on the jury, he just gets bad luck. What Jake also gets into some bad luck, and I love this is actually set up more in the book, about one of the questions, this is a for-cause question the prosecutor's allowed to ask is, do you believe in the death penalty? And this is a very pointed scene in the book of where Jake has some good white people on the jury, some, some people that he wants on this jury that will be very much in favor of his case. The other side's going to have a hard time necessarily just striking for cause. Until Buckley, very correctly, asks them, do you believe in the death penalty? And when they say no... He immediately can strike them for cause. Yeah, he and it's, he doesn't to have to willing. use a peremptory challenge on them. Yep. Which J- nothing Jake can do about that. It's just more bad luck until every single black person gets that message down the line, and they're suddenly all like, "Oh yeah, death penalty, love it. Fry, fry some more people. I, yeah. I'm all in favor of it." Exactly, because there there are some there are some jurors in the book that or one specific juror in the book that Jake has a line on through Ozzy, and so you know the sheriff is. In, I completely off the rails here in doing this, but he's got a informal line on and yeah. Jake is giving like some nuggets to Ozzy to give to his, I think his wife to give to the guy Which of like things to say, as shit. things to say to try to get on the jury. And this guy actually becomes an alternate. He doesn't ever get yeah. on the jury, but it comes an alternate. Yes. But he does feed other information to the jury pool itself, which is, this is Jake directly jury champering. Jake is not an ethical person in this book. We'll address no. that as we go on. He wants to win, for sure. He, he wants to win, certainly. But that, that, that's another key issue that's going in is they're setting up the jury pool. Uh, they're also in terms. They're also working to set up their evidence that they're going to provide. And book goes into more detail about all the other witnesses are going to get, all the other physical evidence that has to be admitted. None of that's as much of a focus because it's more, more background. The main thing the film wants to focus on is... What this case is ultimately going to live and die on, because Jake decides they're going to go for a temporary insanity defense, which we can discuss in Real Lawyer, Fake Lawyer hereafter. Yep. Because it's a very... We'll discuss it. There's a plot Um, point, though, on that. I want to point out that he is trying to... He's thinking about how to mount Carly's defense, and Lucian is a very big proponent of the insanity. Well, he, so he really pushes Jake to go that route. Well, Lucian basically tells him, you've got two options. You've got justifiable homicide, which no one in their right mind would believe, or you have temporary insanity. And Lucian never actually thinks the guy was insane. It doesn't actually really expect Jake to prove that he was insane. What Lucian's always really trying to convince Jake to go for is jury nullification. Well, and to use insanity as a cover for that. Well, Lucian 
well, one slight, t slight tweak on that. Lucian thinks that every that, that his best chance is to convince the jury that this is a justifiable homicide. However, he cannot meet the legal definition of that. Therefore, yes. he's basically going to put that that circle in that square hole, that yes. lead, that justifiable homicide into that insanity hole because they can potentially meet the legal definition of insanity. They're going to try, but more than anything else, they're giving the jury a reason that they could legally find him not guilty. This is what they're trying to effectively do. None of them think that he actually was, you know, insane in that given moment or suffering from a temporary episode or didn't know right from wrong or didn't know what his actions were occurring. Everybody's on the same page when it really came to that shit, particularly Jake, because he already had the conversation beforehand. What they want to do is give enough of a, give enough of a cover that the jury can believe it or at least the jury can feel comfortable selecting it if they don't want to find him guilty. That's the objective here. And to do that, to make provide enough legal cover so the other side can't claim a mistrial or you know or or, 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 or um, any other issue or have the jury the judge essentially throw out the verdict for not having sufficient support, they need an expert. They need a battle of the experts here at play here in terms of they need a psychiatrist who can confidently state on the stand that that man was suffering from a temporary episode where which the Imnoten defense was satisfied, blah, blah, blah. Lucian provides that guy. What is Jake's initial impression of that guy? Well, he's a drunk. He is a drunk. He's a drinking buddy with Lu he's a drinking buddy with Lucian. In the book, Lucian actually explains that the guy is a doctor, practiced for a number of years, totally cool. And Lucian actually details the guy's descent into alcoholism. He goes, oh, drink got him, you know, when he was 50. Um, yeah. In the book, there's multiple instances where the guy comes over to Lucian's house to prep. And by like noon is like catatonic. Drawing. Yeah. Can't, can't get a hold of him. He, so Jake is very, Jake's internal monologue is he is, him and Ellen are very, very worried that this guy will not be able to show up sober. Yeah, Lucian even makes fun of the kind of alcoholic this guy is, and I've known my share. He's the kind that can't honestly hold his drink. He drinks and he passes out. That's the style of drunk that he is. Yeah, Lucian even makes the comment in the movie where he's like, you know, you know, it's embarrassing when an alcoholic can't hold their liquor or something like that. Which is <laughs> something funny. like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this is a guy who is utterly pristine credentials, as presented, very experienced on the stand, that when he's sober, he is compelling. And this is their hope, because as Rourke points out to Jake, and everybody agrees, so much hinges on which whose testimony the jury finds more believable and more trustworthy. But we'll get we'll get into that once we get to that the actual case here in a second. While all of this is happening, we get a very interesting scene, which occurs both book and movie, of where Ali, Ozzy, gets Carl Lee out of prison and takes him to the hospital. And who is he going to see at the hospital? Uh, Lonnie. Looney. Looney. Going Looney. to see Looney, the guy he, the, the, that, who Carl Lee accidentally blew his leg off in killing uh, the two boys. Yes. And his purpose of going there is to apologize. The, is it? Is it, Spencer? Well, because I've got well, I've got the the Ali uh, or uh, Ozzy as master as puppet master theory here going. It's de there's definitely well okay, we can debate what Ozzy's purpose in terms of doing this was. Yeah, Car Carl Lee's purpose in the book may be a little more ambiguous. Carl Lee in the movie, he seems to be honestly there to apologize because just because he's truly horrified about what he did, that he has known Dwayne Looney since they were kids. He never intended to harm him. 
It may not mean much to him in that given moment. His family is just appalled that the guy's even there. Um, but that he just personally wants to apologize to him for what happened. All right, I will introduce my theory. Please. Um, Looney later goes, gets on the stand. Um, Very different testimony, book versus film in this regard. Um, not really. I mean, it, you know, in the in the movie, he starts yelling at the jury, turn him loose, turn him loose. But in the book, he doesn't yell at the jury, but he does say that, um, he thinks that uh, that that Crawley should be let loose, and that he thinks that uh, he would have done the same thing. So it's just less less sort of out of control in the book. He all, they also leave out. I think if I remember, it's been years since I read the book, but I think they leave out the fact that um, the deputy specifically supports the insanity defense in terms of his testimony, of where he goes into detail about how Carly was acting and how he was looking insane. Do I, do I have that wrong? I remember that. Remember uh, yeah, he does. I mean, he's prepped to do that. I mean, so basically, um, yeah, you're right. He, he, he does. He says, well, he was laughing maniacally and he gives some details that support the insanity defense. But ultimately, he does say, you know, Carly did what I would have done. But yeah. my, my Ozzy is puppet master. Please. Um, theory here is that Ozzy is reading the tea leaves and he knows that Looney being the only victim of this crime still alive is likely going to take the stand if for no other reason than to explain what happened um, when Carly busted out of that closet. And he knew that if Carly had any chance in hell, Looney had to be an, an, an advocate for Carly. And so he, I, I think he they might have broke the law and even taken him there, um, takes him there. The family tries to stop him at the door. Ozzy tells him to fuck right off. The family sits down and he facilitates this conversation where I'm pretty sure that Looney had forgiven Carly before Carly showed up. But I am damn sure in the book that after that conversation, Looney is a Carl Lee supporter. And yeah. I think that my, my theory is that Ozzy is already trying to start prepping witnesses to support Carl Lee. It's very possible. Uh, I think the book does a better job of setting up Jake's own involvement to a certain degree in the prepping, of, particularly up to T Deputy Looney, of where Jake's not surprised when Looney starts supporting the insanity defense when he's on the stand. He just smiles that the testimony's perfect the way he wanted. Which well, that, that, that there is that moment, though, in the book. Uh, you know, it, that, that, that moment does exist in the book. Where Jake is not going to go all the way to asking, you know, should you put him in, should he be in jail? Yeah. So that yeah. moment, that moment in the movie where, where um, Carly says, hey, no, Jake, ask him, should I go to jail? That moment, it's not as, it's not as dramatic, but that moment does exist in the book. And I, I thought that was really cool. I mean, I, I don't know. That's my question to you. I mean, and you, I mean, if you're a lawyer and you have your client saying, hey, ask him this, I mean, is that something you have to do, or is that where you tell the client shut the hell up? Uh, it's your job to provide your client legal advice about what questions you can and cannot legally ask. That question would have never and should never have gone to the jury. That question never should have been allowed in the courtroom. That the judge would have immediately, um, immediately sustained any objection, as he does for a lot of what the theatrics that Jake Briance engages in here, and we've immediately directed the jury to disregard anything on that topic. That it's. It is irrelevant to these proceedings that he's there as a fact witness. He cannot provide opinion, testimony, or commentary. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. Well, we're going to talk... We can go to that just here in a second in terms of Jake's style and some of the terms of things that he does there. But the film... And the book does this to a less degree, but the film loves to do it. It was a lot of times where Jake says something that is just entirely off the wall, obviously subject to objection. And he just says, withdrawn, Your Honor, and walks away without pun punishment or consequence. Bull goddamn shit with some of the things that he says or does in that courtroom. My thought was if you have a, he, he clearly shows a pattern of behavior there. 
he'd eventually get some sort of like uh, sanction or something. The judge would do something, right? You can't just keep plugging those things, putting those things in the juror's mind and saying, oh, I withdraw. Absolutely. The judge, he, I think I, I like the judge in the book. I don't particularly like the judge in the film just because he lets his courtroom get utter shit. He lets his courtroom get out, completely out from under him. And That's one of those point. comes to Jake Bergance's yeah. antics because it, several times he like threatens Jake with contempt, but he never does it. And so Jake just keeps doing it. As you said, keeps putting thoughts in the jury's head that he legally isn't allowed to do. Yeah, you're right. I mean, he the courtroom does not get as out of control in the book. Judge News has it much more under control. However, um, there are moments where, um, you know, Rufus objects, Jake is doing something, and Noose lets it go. He, you know, he never, you know, if it's a, if it's an obvious thing that Jake is fucking up, he calls Jake on it. But where there is, he can, where there's a, like a, where it's close, where he can go Gray away, area. he always goes with Jake because one of the, the dynamics that they, they introduce in the book that's not in the movie is that um, Noose is more sort of a mentor to Jake. Jake has a as an actual personal relationship with the judge, um, which that has all kinds of problems with it too. It, it does. It, it's interesting that in the book, the fact that he's named Noose is almost more of a joke because he's not really that kind of just unfair hanging judge. The film seems to be kind of framing him in that way, which I don't think is really fair to the character in the book. Agreed. Um, we'll, we'll cut to Jake's antics here in a second, but we really now are kind of just setting up now for trial. We have the first day of hearings of where, as you said, we get some lovely moments of where Jake is effectively just trying to utterly humiliate Buckley in court in terms of always referring to him as governor, governor. calling him out that he's pre-objecting to things that Jake even, hasn't even asked for yet. Um, but while we're really setting up these kind of initial days for trial, the KKK is on the move and wants to make a scene. One of the first things they do is go after Jake's family which is no surprise at all, I suppose. I think it's even almost more surprising that there is an act of protection on them. Scary as a lawyer? God damn, yeah, damn right it's scary yeah, which, as a lawyer. Yeah, it would scare me too. I mean, it, you know, this this idea that like, you know, you get a you get a controversial case. I know you're not really in that type of law, but like mm -hmm. you get a controversial case and people might target your family. I mean, that, that's just really, it's appalling. It's utterly appalling. Um if anything, I, I suppose it's just reflecting the fact just how far removed this community has felt from that for a long time. KKK hasn't been around. This is the new South. This is a new face. This is a new, this is a new future. They don't really think about the KKK being that kind of threat anymore, and they have been for a long time. And so it truly catches them in the police off guard that KKK is not just here. They're back, and they're in force, and they want to make a scene. One of the ways that plays out early during the proceedings is when we get a series of protests going in both directions, occurring out front in front of the courthouse while, like, the first day of trial is trying to start to happen. So I'd like to say something about this. I know I'm cutting you off a lot, but I, this, this is something that I really feel strongly about. I did not really like, I, I hinted at this earlier, I did not like, I come from a, a rural part of the South, a really small town, and I thought I felt like black preachers held a lot of the community together sure and i didn't like the the portrayal of the black black preacher as just this slimy guy who was out to like you know solicit donations for the family and pocket them i, I don't know i just that wasn't my experience with rural black preachers mm -hmm. i thought they were like really good community upstanding community members so i love the bit of a redemption that they get in can they can they give Carly lawyers? No, Carly doesn't want it. What? But mm. what can they do? 
Stand they there can, with them they outside. Can march there with fucking ten thousand people and chant outside the courtroom. I thought that was really cool. And in the book, they take great pains to show that the preachers all have this like sort of informal network where they all sort of like they 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 tap into that informal network to bring mm-hmm. massive amount of people. And in the book, they take great pains to show that while the KKK does show up in their their garb and their crosses, they and are chanting. They outnumbered. are outnumbered <laughs> ten to one. Yeah, they're in hostile Americans territory. They're chanting. Um, so it was sort of like, well, at least they show like that the black preachers do something positive in the community right. because I, I didn't like the earlier portrayal. No, I, I didn't particularly like it either. But I like that they do show that that preacher is front and foremost in throughout most of these protests in the film. I think even it's one of the ones that's like leading the charge in the KKK comes up here in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said, they are out in force. They're really in some ways mining the old contacts and the old lines they had back during the Martin Luther King era and the, back during the proper civil rights era in terms of bringing these church-based support of all these people to this location at this one time. And the book, they, you know, Grisham explains that they're like almost artful in their chanting. Like yeah. they know they can, they, it's almost like they're like a, like a um, stand-up comedian or something, how they just have the pulse of the crowd. Like he, he describes it. He's like, oh, as soon as they started to get a little tired, he switched up the chant. And oh, as soon mm. as they all wanted to sit down, he broke for lunch. Like he was just like reading the room with these these protesters. Which makes it, and again, this is a, this is a this is a southern town that is more white than it is black, but it's a more it's a blue dog Democrat, but this is a more of a liberal town than maybe a lot of the surrounding areas are. So they're very much supportive of this, which makes it all the more shocking when the KKK, led by the Grand Dragon of the Mississippi Ku Klux Klan, comes marching into town in what in the fi- in the film feels more force than it does in the sh- it does in the book. In the book, it almost feels token and mockable when they come marching in, but in the film, it is portrayed as that he's got a friggin' army at his back. They're marching into this. They come into town, their purpose is to create mischief, their purpose is to create a scene, their purpose is to further inflame the efforts that they've already been engaging in, in terms of targeting Jake, in terms of harassing people, all along the line. We'll go into detail about some of those here in a minute. And they're both trying to intimidate the jury, right? Both sides. Yes. This is this is meant to be like the first day of proceedings. This is meant to be a very pointed thing about, we've got a message we're trying to convey into the court right now. Yeah. What happens is things spiral the ever-loving shit out of control in a fucking heartbeat. Of where it immediately turns to violence, it immediately turns into a full-on riot, and in the process, and what was a shocking moment for both for me in both book and film, the Grand Dragon of the Mississippi Ku Klux Klan is burned alive on the streets of Clanton, Mississippi. I'm never a fan of Molotov cocktails in people's faces. Let me just put that on record. I'm glad we've clarified that. Just point. want to put that on record, okay? I got, I'm going okay. to be official here. Uh, I, I'm Lee adding that in. From Mangum Talks TV does not support Molotov cocktails in people's faces. However, if you're ever going to throw a Molotov cocktail at a person, I'm going to I'm going to say that the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan should be number one on the list. Okay. That's all I'm saying. Let, let, let's just have this added into the record. <laughs> Lee supports street violence, murder. Gotcha. We're on, we're on the same page. If you got to do it to someone, if you have to do it, that might be the right guy to do it to. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> the practical effect of it is to make the sides all the more militant and the violence only increase. Yep. Because I hate to refer to the Grand Dragon as a more controlled figure. That's a stretch to even say. But compared to the leadership that takes over after him, it is getting even worse when it comes to their activities thereafter. Yeah, because he gets burned. He later dies. Although in the book, he's giving some last minute, like... He, I mean, he's a, he's a, I mean, he's a, he's a true blood to the end. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't back off, but he, he's giving instructions from his deathbed. But once he dies, it inflames the Ku Klux Klan even more. And I think they get more violent. 
Right, which goes on to attacks. I mean, just just to describe them in some some detail, we'll get to the, one of the worst ones later. But there's an attack on uh, Ethel and her husband, which Ugh. leaves her husband severely injured, and Ethel having basically withdraw from supporting Jake, both practically but also emotionally in terms of what has happened. In many ways, she blames Jake for bringing about this course of events. Isn't that another one that would probably terrify you as a lawyer? Like your your secretary Absolutely. Gets, gets involved. Like, they, you know, they, they target her and her husband gets beat to death. Ugh. What? He's alive in the, bo- in, the, in the film. Does he die in the book? I'm trying to remember. Oh, no. He dies in the film, too. I mean, remember? Because they, they go to the funeral and that's where Ethel basically um, oh, cusses, right. cusses out Jake. Um, and Lucian takes her to the car because, you know, there's that little wink, wink, nod, nod that Lucian and Ethel used to, I, you know, I, get I it lo- on. I love Harry and Jake's joke about that, about, come on, didn't you? You were together for like 30 years. And she's like, no, never. I'm a proper Southern woman. I would never do such a thing, particularly with that snake of a man. And walks out and there's like, she did. Yeah, she did. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Um how do you feel about what she says about Jake in that given moment of when she confronts him about what happened, about what he brought about upon them? Do you think what she said was fair? No, but I don't. Well, no. Well, let me back that up. Explain yourself, sir. I am sympathetic and I do not fault her for what she said. However, I do not think that the substance of what she said was fair. I think, you know, you deal, somebody's dealing in grief, grief like that. They say unreasonable things, and I don't necessarily hold that against them personally. But I will say that I thought what she said was overly harsh but in the both, both the book and the, and the movie. Um, and, I, you know, I honestly felt bad for Jake because I, I, I felt like that was a real gut punch to him and a really hard moment in the case when he's being targeted, too, by the way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, unfair, but um, has some sympathy for. What did you think? So you, to use legal terms, you find excusable but not justifiable in terms of that kind of divide. Correct. What did uh, you think? I think it is a perfectly reasonable attack on where Jake was at the start of the case. It's no longer a reasonable attack about why he's in the case now. That I think there's a reasonable enough point to bring out that Jake... When he starts this off, and we see this in terms of his interactions with the family and grandstanding in front of the press, is this is getting a little bit good to him. That he is kind of working off this press and the publicity, and he enjoys it and views it as a potential benefit to himself long term. And I also think it's a fair thing to point out that Jake did not in any way reasonably consider what the personal consequences to him, his family, and his friends would be from what he was getting involved in this case. I think he was almost cavalier in that regard. Um, I don't think it's as fair as enough attack about what Jake's motivations are, particularly by the point that it happens. I think Jake honestly does believe in this case. He believes in his client, and he believes that he's fulfilling justice in a way that nobody else would. And I think that deserves to be recognized, but I think the flaws in his character, which are much more pronounced, I think, in the book than in the film, deserve to be mentioned, and I think she's rightfully calling some of those out. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, but I, 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 I'm a big tone guy because um, I'm a more, uh, I guess, maybe a, a emotional guy maybe than, than, than you are at times. Um, Perfectly fair. Perfectly fair. And, and so, like, I, I think tone is everything sometimes. And like, I felt like she was just too harsh in the moment because, I mean, a, it's not like Jake wasn't going through anything either. You know, he was being sure. targeted as well. And I felt like she that, that, that sympathy, she was absent that in, in her comments. 
And in that regard, in terms of some of the targets that we get on Jake, we get the cross burning in his goddamn lawn, which we get to see that a there may be a bit of a mole in the KKK informing both his family. Mickey and Mouse, shout out Mickey Mouse. Lifesaver. Who is a prior contact of Jake's in the book. Is he not? Isn't he a prior informant that Jake knows? It's a former client. Former client who was actually ultimately murdered in the book rather than... Uh, he is. Uh, right, right before the KKK leave town, uh, they, they murder Mickey Mouse. But not in the book. book he survives. Well, in the film, yeah. Um, sorry, sorry, film. Yeah. So that happens. He also gets uh, calls threatening him with murder and his family with murder. He also gets a friggin' bomb that is attempted to be put underneath his porch, which they engage which in Ozzie the Ozzy Kessis, shout out Sheriff Ozzy. So Ozzy does a great job in terms of defusing the situation, not necessarily defusing <laughs> the bomb. That's funny. Uh, they engage in the most cavalier acts when it comes to this bomb of where. We've stopped you. Open the case. Dude, get it away from the house. Just put it in an open field somewhere. Yeah, in the in the in the film that scene is stupid. I mean, Jake grabs it, pulls it apart, and throws it. it. Uh, so stupid. In the book, what happens is Ozzy uh takes a blackjack and starts breaking every bone in the guy's legs yeah. until the guy diffuses it himself, which is much right. more realistic. It, it's it's more realistic in terms of what J, uh, Ozzy would have done. It's, it's still unrealistic in terms of actual bomb diffusing itself. I feel like films love the idea of people diffusing bombs in a way that actually doesn't happen in real life. Yeah, yeah, maybe. And, but, it, you know, it's probably... It, it, it's more likely that guy's going to diffuse it than Jake's going like, to rip it apart and throw it into a tree. Right. Uh, in real life, they perp, what happens is the bomb diffuser squads take it in the middle of nowhere or take it into a field, and they set their own explosive decks to it, and they control blow it up. Yeah. Nobody tries to defuse shit, particularly not next to a house. But I like, I love how Ozzy goes about it in the book. It's lovely. Yeah, he just uh, starts at the lower ankle. Pop, thunk, pop, thunk, pop, thunk. pop, breaking bone after bone. Finally, the guy just goes, oh, fuck, I'll do it. Fine, give it to me. I'll, I'll, I'll take this thing down. Yeah. Uh, it ultimately culminates in them straight up burning Jake's house to the ground. Um, which occurs later in our story, but it's another just thing to moment. By that point, his family has been sent away to, I think it's her parents, somewhere out in, of town. In Wilmington, North Carolina, yes. Right. You know, that's a lovely place to be safe and enjoy yourself. I think Wilmington's a place that more people need to visit. Um, gets them out of town. What this sets up is another degree of tension that we get in both book and film is the relationship that Jake has with Roark. All right, before we get there, Jake's hmm. house gets burned down. Yes. In the film, Jake goes to the house he is distraught. He's looking around. He's yelling for his dog that's obviously dead. Harry Rex shows up and Harry Rex goes, Jake, you got to get control of yourself. Fucking dog's dead. You have got to, you got to, you got to tighten up here, partner. And, and dun, get out dun, of the dun, case. Dun, nah, here comes the dog out from the back. Flump, flump, Let me tell flump. you something, ladies and gentlemen. I hate to, uh, I hate to, to, to drop this uh, house of cards here. That dog is Deader dead. than dead in the book. Dead. Deader than dead, dead and would be deader so than dead in the film. I found it hilarious. I was like watching it and laughing that they brought the dog back in the film. Because it's like, it, it just shows where we're at in a society, right? You can show people getting beat to death. You can show overtly Three racist people behavior. Murdered. You can ha- you can show the, the, the rape of this, this 10-year-old girl. But you cannot show a dead dog. That dog has to survive in the film. We we have a National Guard soldier who is paralyzed in a sniping attempt. We have a, a man that is burned alive on the streets of town. We have two people that are shot dead with an M16. We have a girl that is brutally raped. We have acts of mob violence. We have threats to family. 
but are you, sir, suggesting that we're going to have a golden retriever die on screen? Or golden Hell lab, no, bridge too far. Let's whoop, let's bring the dog back. <laughs> but the dog's definitely dead. It definitely dead. And I, it's such a... I think it's it was so a powerful a scene of where it really demonstrated what a good actor Matthew McConaughey would eventually evolve to be, of where him sitting in the house just calling for his dog, knowing that his dog is dead, was really well done acting and a really well done scene between him and Oliver Platt. And so having the I dog just kind agree, of... And it just kind of disappointed me that the dog yeah. came back, yeah. Having the dog run in back there really took away from a good scene. But Agreed. as I was setting up, we see a building relationship that occurs with his wife out of town, with her playing a key role in the case, providing key legal research, helping write his damn briefs, really being the kind of figure that makes this case happen for him, for Jake, of Roark. What kind of relationship would you say the two of them form together with respect to this case and with respect to each other? I would say that um, Roark um, is a pretty carefree, I mean, she's, she, she's carefree in her personal life, Mm -hmm. um in the fact that she's willing to just couch hop and just show up and like yeah you want to take tequila shots boom let's do them no big deal she's very very serious about the case obviously um Mm -hmm. but i think she's when she shows up you know she's down she she would um she's ready to go with jake if if jake wants to go there she has no ethical qualms about having a relationship with jake during the course of this case that is no No more than just professional no problem Yep. Jake is, I think, in fairness, decidedly tempted in this regard. And I think you commented before cast that the film seems to have uh, maybe more sympathies to Roark than to necessarily Jake's wife in terms of overall focus and overall role in, the, role in the story. Well, you're getting the first person of Jake, and Jake obviously is noticing the physical attributes of Roark and his own wife. And in the book, he describes them both as being stunningly beautiful. Yes. I think they dress Ashley Judd down in this role, yeah. and they dress Sandra Bullock up. So it seems to me, red-blooded male that I am, that... Roark is much more attractive than his wife in the film. I don't think that's the dynamic in the book at all. And I think they do it that way in the film because they're trying to set up that like, oh, that will they, won't they of Jake. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Jake has much more in the book, much more of a, uh, he actually more likes Roark as a, 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 for her legal mind and who she is. and, And because she's a good hang. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem as overtly physical as it is portrayed in the film. And I think probably because it's just, it's faster and it's easier for the audience to to under, to under comprehend mm-hmm. uh, a quick physical attraction, right? So it's just, sure. it's just an easier thing to do in the film. It, it's one, it, I agree. There's a certain amount of streamlining that's going to play. I enjoy their relationship beyond just simply their flirting. I mean, they have great legal minds and they work off each other well. But one of the things I love is basically what is their initial interaction of whether it's an, it referred to in the film as their initial job interview of where he confronts her on the fact that he's very much a blue dog Democrat in terms of his political views, <laughs> in terms of his perspectives on the death penalty or whatever else, with almost like an element of where he's almost purposely trying to set her off almost in perp- on purpose. Yeah. And uh, one of the main things they butt heads over is the subject of the death penalty. He represents, here, if, if, if I could ask you to do so, if you were to summarize their respective views that they tell each other about what their views on the death penalty are, how would you summarize them? Uh, Roark, I do not believe in the death penalty. Uh, mm-hmm. It should never be used. It's barbaric. Um, it's hypocritical. Yep. Fundamentally and, unfair practice. And, and if you've ever actually seen an execution, then you wouldn't either. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'll switch to Jake. Um, 
problem with the death penalty is we don't use it enough. We need to kill more motherfuckers who deserve dying. Which she's legitimately flabbergasted when he tells her this. It's just like... Considering they both vote the same way, which is pretty funny. Yeah. But she can't even comprehend that he has this view. And he, at the same time, is like, you need to keep your northern liberal views out of our community when it comes to this. Which I feel like he's purposely almost over-exaggerating his own views in this conversation to basically just get her in the right mindset when it comes to this case. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's a good nuance to point out that I think what Jake is recognizing here is that her um, fundamental dislike of the death penalty is going to serve him greatly um, in mounting a defense for Carl Lee because he can tap into her talents. Mm -hmm. That does not at all need to be the centerpiece of the case. He does not need to get in front of that jury pool and say that the death penalty should never occur because he is most likely going to do be dealing with juries that believe in the death penalty. He needs to say it's not appropriate in this case. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, he's going to engage in jury nullification in many different ways other than that. And that would just distract from his case. <laughs> um, so that's another key, that I really do enjoy the relationship. I really do enjoy how important she she is to the case, and what ultimately occurs to her ultimately becomes that much more painful once mm. we see it play out. Too, mm. but we'll get there in a minute. In the actual case itself, one of the first things we set up is a is, de, is a degree of fact witness testimony that is going to just inform the jury about the nature of the facts of the case. The jury pool that he's gotten is not ideal. None of the people that he really wanted on the jury are there. It's, All white. It's all white, and it's not all young men the way that he wanted to. Because he thought that young men would be more sympathetic in terms of what Carl Lee ultimately did. Doesn't really get any of that. But it's the pull he got, he has to work with it. In terms of setting up factual witnesses, we basically, I think, hear from three of where we hear from the... Well, at least what we see in the film. We hear from the mother of the two two guys that were killed. We hear from the sheriff. Ali... We hear from the deputy. I'm talking about the fact witnesses. We'll get to the experts here in a minute. But yeah, I, think yeah. I think that's the only three we hear from. I agree. Yeah. For every one of the three of these, Jake engages in practices that should probably be held him, hold him in contempt. Of where every single turn, he's trying to get them to provide testimony that they cannot provide and that has already been seemingly excluded by pretrial order or just not being relevant to the case. And every single time, Buckley properly objects, and every single time, the judge sustains the objection and instructs the jury not to remember it. Mission just inform would-be lawyers coming out there, or even the actual lawyers that are listening, you can't get away with this shit in real life. The film overemphasizes, this occurs to a limited degree in the, in the book. I think Jake's a lot more savvy about how he gets this testimony. He does in. it like twice, yeah, in the he book. He does it like twice, and he's much more savvy about doing it subtly than he is in this, where he's just coarsely asking them the question. Sometimes it's like twice in a row. Well, in the, in the film, it looks like he, he is asking questions he's not supposed to ask, Mm-hmm. And judge is calling him, and he goes, "Okay, fine." And, and it's very clear, withdrawn, judge, withdrawn. Very, very clear that he's doing it on purpose. In the book, he feigns ignorance, almost like, "Oh, sorry," because he, he does the "I'm a young lawyer" shtick routine yeah. with Noose, and it actually it plays well with Noose a few times. Sure. So he leans on that because um, Noose is his mentor. Explain why he? Oh, why did he ask that inappropriate question? Oh, well, judge, I yeah, sorry, I just wasn't thinking. Uh, you know, I'm I new did, to this. May a couple, may a couple, and as you said, because Noose is his mentor, it works. It plays well to him. We don't have any of that here. It's just like he's just being willfully uh, willfully working around the, the rules of evidence and going into improper information. He, realistically, he would have been found in contempt and he probably would have reported for the bar for some of the shenanigans that he engages here. It's very very much a risk that the jury, that the mistrial would have simply been declared because the jury would have just been 
too contaminated in a way that couldn't be brought back from with some of the things that he gets. Like, he tries to get, he gets the mom to talk about, you know, how many women, uh, what, is, what is he asking her? Like, how many prior rapes have they been accused of in the past or something along those lines, which is obviously, obviously has been previously discussed and previously barred. He gets, he tries to get the sheriff to opine about what the jury should do. Can't do that shit. As we said, he talk he talks to Looney and tries to get Lo- and under persuasion of his client tries to get Looney to aggressively declare how the jury should rule. Can't do any of that shit. That's one of the things I wanted to focus on is that one of the things that Jake does very well in the book is that he sets up Looney's testimony to support the actual defense he is trying to raise. For Looney provides effectively some of the best fact witness testimony to support that in the book. It's seemingly something that Jake is laughing out of control. His eyes were glassed over. That right. sort of stuff, yeah. And it's great It's great fact testimony that's essential to his case. None of that really comes in, Looney, at all in the film. They instead focus on the second half of that of Lord Looney under instruction, that Jake asked him under instructions from his client about what would you do. Uh, Looney could not answer that. It's utterly irrelevant to his testimony. He cannot advise the jury in that regard. That'd be immediately stricken. And if Jake continued to persist in that, Jake would be held in contempt or possibly be brought up for bar sanctions. But whatever. It's a lot of that in this film. But that's really a lot of the fact witnesses that we go through here. I, I don't think there's really much more to discuss when it comes to those. And let, let, unless there's anything else you want, we really want to talk about for it. In just terms of, he asked them various questions. Both sides get in. What happened? Why did it happen? Who gets shot? How do you get the gun? None of the facts are really in dispute. What's mainly in dispute is what the jury should do with these facts. I mean, I understand that like they, Grisham writes it. And it, it goes to the loony testimony goes too far with him yelling, turn him loose, turn him loose, you know, all that stuff. And how he shouldn't be commenting, he shouldn't be giving an opinion. He's a fact witness, right? Mm-hmm. I still maintain that if there was any way to work in that Looney was somehow sympathetic to Carl Lee, if you mm-hmm. could get get there in any way, if I was on the jury, it would be impactful. Now again, no, no. I'm more I'm a more of an emotional guy than than a lot of people are. So I I, I would just it would impact me to hear that Looney did not hold a grudge. Because um, I would think, you know, obviously you think, well, if anybody should, it should be Looney, right? Well, and Jake gets in that question first about, do you hold any grudge against Carly for what he did? That's the first question he gets in. And there's no objection to that. That could probably get in just fine. It's when he then asks him about what would you have done in the shoes, which is yeah. his recurring question to the case. That can't do that shit. Um, but we get to the fact witnesses and it really comes up now to the battle of the experts and Jake. Oh, what about, what about Ozzy's testimony when Ozzy keeps wanting to talk about the fact that they raped the girl and he keeps put, he almost does the same thing that that Jake does, right? Where he knows he's not supposed to say it, but he looked, he turns to the jury and says it anyway, multiple times. Do you think Jazzy would have, Ozzy would have been held in contempt? Yeah. Absolutely. I would have chewed him as a judge for doing that shit because he just contaminated the jury in a way I can't pull back. I can instruct the jury to disregard what he just said, but they heard it. He's got advised by their own sheriff. Yeah, I thought Ozzy was like low-key really inappropriate there, um, for yeah. sure. Is that in the book? I don't remember. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. As you said, I mean, Ozzy, Ozzy's got goals here. Well, Ozzy, even more inappropriate in the book is that Ozzy and, and Jake are like debriefing every day on strategy. Oh, of how to, I mean, Ozzy is a active participant in the defense of Carly. Which is fundamentally improper because Jake should not be speaking with that witness without informing the prosecution period anyway. That is a direct witness to the case. That is part of the case. You can't just 
go on with him and plan your case with that guy in that way. So if you want a, just an illustration of Ozzy's sympathy for Carl Lee. So Carl Lee commits the murder in the book. He goes home. He, Ozzy gets in the car. He goes to Carl Lee's home. Carl Lee walks out onto the porch. And this actually like got me a little misty-eyed when I was reading it. Um, Ozzy looks at Carl Lee, looks down at his feet, kicks the dirt and says, well, Carl Lee, I suspect you're going to be coming with me. I, I remember that scene. I love that scene when I hand, read the book. doesn't handcuff him and puts him in the front of the patrol car. Yeah, oh, we get, man. And we don't get that dialogue, which is a big loss. We don't get that dialogue. But we do get that setup of a scene. And we get to see Ozzy's face when he comes to pick him up in the film. Where he's clearly regretful he needs to do this. And it's a very poignant scene of where Carl Lee is holding his daughter and leaving his family behind as he exits like that. But, it, but you don't get that line, Carl Lee, I suspect it's you're going to come with me. That might be the line of the book. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's really impactful. Line. Yeah, but that, that's just illustrative of Ozzy as a fact witness, obviously is is doing everything he can to support Carly. And then in the background is helping Jake um, in any number of ways. First and foremost, probably allowing Carly to even go to Looney's fucking hospital right. room. Jake does not behave ethically as an attorney here by a lot of proper standards, but I think it's also fair to say that his opponent is not doing any better and possibly doing quite worse in that regard, too. And I think the film almost emphasizes that to a certain degree about his opponent actively working to undermine the case in ways that he shouldn't and also getting records even in advance of Jacob. Or I think even the film they show is that we can't, we, neither of us can review the confidential records of the jury pool before the judges had a chance to review them. And his, his second's holding the confidential file and showing it in the background while he's saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Sure. So it's a, there's a, two attorneys engaging in increasingly unethical practices throughout this film in a lot of ways. But what this sets up now is the experts, what's actually, what actually matters the most. Because the facts were never in dispute. Now they need to actually get somebody to sustain their temporary insanity defense right here, right now. Uh, they get in the uh, psychologist from Shawshank, from, uh, from Silence of the Lambs for the prosecution. <laughs> it's totally the same guy. I'm willing to believe it's the same guy across universes too, but we'll see. We, we, we can debate that. Uh, meanwhile, they get their uh, much more clean-cut, much more presentable uh, psychiatrist on their side to testify on, on their behalf. Roark saves the goddamn day for Jake when she acquires the necessary information to rebut and undermine the, the state's psychiatrist's testimony. Of course, she does such by... <laughs> She's the best. She's she the best. shows up <clears throat> to the guy's office, flirts with the guy in the front, to get the the office number of the guy, mm -hmm. um, is, is Sandra Bullock does this beautifully. This sort oh, of like, yes. oh, I'm, well, I'm just a oh, little no. pretends to be a journalist. Yes, get, you know, goes well. I'll I'll be in his office room number three three six soon. He goes, oh no, little Missy, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it's actually one one four. You know, playing the big but, guy in front of but her. How about you come back with me and we'll schedule something? <laughs> oh no, I can't. And then she breaks into the office. She looks at the record. She figures out that this guy has never once testified that a individual um, was actually insane in one of these right. in, in one of yeah. these murder cases. He's always said uh, that it was his opinion that the person was not insane. And there's a strong implication in my mind that the prosecution withheld this evidence because Jake would have, of course, asked for that kind of thing in pretrial discovery and pretrial prep. So the fact that he didn't get that in many ways implies misconduct in my mind on the part of the prosecution, that they kind of withheld or hid that information. But Roark gets it, and it is freaking essential in two ways. Because A, it demonstrates that he's biased testimony, that he's only ever testified publicly on the subject of, well, every... Everybody I've ever testified on was 
was crim- was criminally sane and should be prosecuted. But what it leads to is wonderful testimony number two about that there are prior people that have been found not guilty by reason of insanity that he previously testified that were insane that he is now actively treating in his institution for insanity. Where he stood, he got on as an expert witness, got on the got on the stand and said that guy's not crazy. Mm-hmm. The jury found that he was in fact insane. Now yes. not guilty. Now he's treating him at his facility for severe mental illness. Now, just wah, good. And Jake, Ruark, that's a masterpiece. And Jake asks a wonderful question about, are you normally in the habit of treating people <clears throat> that are not criminally insane? Wonderful moment. Wonderful. And wonderful don't you just, moment. As a lawyer, don't you just like, you just salivate what? for being and able I'm, to ask that question? I'm disappointed that he kept going. That he should have stopped right there. It's the last nugget for the jury. Instead, he ends on an objection. He, he pushes, as Jake always does in the film, he pushes it too far. He directly, you know, almost asks like, "Oh, so you are you with the habit of test uh, of trying to get innocent people convicted or some shit like that?" I don't even remember the exact words. Yeah, it's, and yeah, it's too too far. The other side objects. The judge sustains and he instructs the jury to disregard. Which Jake has so many unforced errors when it comes to that regard. So the ways he can get things in in the film. But it's a wonderful moment when he sets up that, that, that point. It's what he needed desperately to undermine the other side's testimony. Because otherwise, he's sunk. The jury could not rationally pick against, uh, to rule in his favor, unless he could in some way undermine the testimony of their psychiatrist, given his credentials and background and the authority of his testimony and presentation. Jake's expert also goes on the stand and does not do as well for reasons. Now, I'm going to set those up for a second, but we also got to go into what's happening behind the scenes while this is occurring. Of where Jake's, you know, had his house burned down. He enjoyed a prior lovely evening with Roark. Their flirtation continued to an aggressive degree. Tequila shots. Tequila shots. They even have a conversation about, do you want me to stay? And he admits, yes, he would. And so she should leave, which is a great moment. And she drives home, or drives back to her motel. She gets stopped by a police on the way back mm. home. A classic mm. blue light special. Mm. And as we have learned over the course of this film, one of the deputies, Aldazis, is now a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Is directly fight, feeding them information and support. In the book, so, this is a obvious blind. Ozzy is Ozzy bats a perfect game trying to help Carly, except, except here. He is, seems incapable in this book and in other books in the same universe of seeing um, the mistakes of his own deputies. He always gives his own deputies the benefit of the doubt to his detriment. What we see is an utterly horrendous and difficult scene um, of where she is taken on the car, beaten, clothing ripped over, and is told that she's going to be left there to die, strung up to a pole. And they leave her there with the assumption that she's never going to be found and she's going to spend days just decaying as the animals feast upon her. Rough scene. Difficult scene. So there's a moment in the book that they did not show in the film that was so powerful. So in the book, Roark gets put to the stake and they they rip her clothes off and they cut her hair. They shear her hair very violently. And a guy gets out one of those huge bull whips. Mm-hmm. And he's standing away from her, you know, about 10 feet from her. And he starts to warm up this bullwhip. And Mickey Mouse walks up and has a very, this is all from Ellen's perspective, has a brief conversation with the guy and points away. And the guy walks away and takes the bullwhip away. 
So Mickey Mouse is 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 providing Jake some intel and and mm-hmm. doing some rat prote- out some protecting the, a lot of people. Yeah, the really violent stuff that the clan is doing, but in this moment he overtly steps in and stops Alan from getting bullwhipped. It's it's probably one of the things that ultimately leads to him being killed in the book. In terms of his direct flashing his hand in some ways in that regard. Yeah, that was the, the probably the of what we see in the book. That's the most the time where he was the most obvious about saying, "Hey, we're going too far here, guys." And he stopped. He stopped this. He's clearly high up in the clan, and he stopped this this thing from happening. Quiet, quietly, Mickey Mouse, one of the MVPs of the story in terms of the roles that he plays in terms of help, helping and protecting people. Saves Jake's life multiple times. Provides key information at several moments in several and ways. Saves Ellen, maybe saves her life, but definitely saves her from getting bullwhipped. I don't know. Think she. I think very purposely they put her in a place that she wouldn't have been found. That she likely would have died due to the elements within a couple of days being out there. So oh, man, awful way to go. But she's out of the way at a key moment in the case, and I think that informs some of the mistakes that Jake makes from here. That she she's not there to provide Jake some of the advice, at least in the film. Of where point number one of where things go wrong about they did not properly vet their witness. It, it, it comes, but not helped by the fact that he had the guarantee of Lucian, and they guess they just didn't bother to check that as it comes out, and this is very proper for Buckley to bring this up, and Buckley does it brilliantly about how he brings it up in the film, about, he asks him, have you ever been priorly convic- convicted of a felony? And he says no. Oof. The moment he says that, everything he wants to bring in, he can bring in for impeachment purposes. He can bring all that damn all that damn thing in now because he didn't have to previously disclose these kind of records because now he's just trying he didn't have he wasn't able to suspect that the guy would lie on the stand like this so he doesn't even ask him you know statute rape or anything else that could be possibly prejudicial in various ways whatever else he asks him did you commit a felony when he lies it all comes in that he's previously been convicted of statutory rape a felony in the state. And by that means, by lying on the stand, by having a record of a felony, his testimony, at least with respect to his honesty, is pretty fully discredited in a way that is potentially disastrous for Jake's case. Um, I would bring up, actually, something that came to mind, that Jake does not also properly lay a proper foundation for when he's, cro- for when he's cross-examining the, um, the psychiatrist in terms of the evidence that he brings in, but that's just an evidentiary issue that would have taken a few extra steps. But we can talk about that in Real Lawyer, Fake Lawyer. Um, but this is pretty disastrous for Jake's case because as they said, they needed this witness to ring for the jury. And the fact that now that ring has been tarnished, the fact that now is, is a dull sound for them, not good. What makes things worse is that Jake, and remind me how this plays out in the book because this is monstrously stupid. I need a further explanation for why he does it. Jake decides to put Carl Lee on the stand. Well, okay, so he does it in the book because he thinks he's behind. And he talks to Lucian and Lucian says, okay, you're behind. And a couple of things. One is you need to scrap the idea that you're really going after the insanity defense. All you're really doing by introducing insanity is giving the jury a out. You're giving them something to vote on. What you're really doing is trying to get sympathy for Crawley and the fact that he killed these guys. And so you need Crawley on the stand to show that emotion of a distraught father. Now, he walks a very tight line in the book because he's trying to solicit sympathy for Carl Lee um, because of what happened to his daughter and the actions that he took. However, he is trying to, to the maximum extent practical, sidestep any indication of premeditation. And it's hard to do both. It's hard to say, hey, 
don't you feel bad for Carl Lee? He had to do this because of what they did to his daughter. And then by the same token, say Carl Lee didn't really plan this. He was just temporarily insane that it just happened. So he, he was walking a fine line there. But I would say that in the book, more so than in the show, it's done as a, a last gasp from the defense because in the book, it's, it's explained through multiple characters POV that when that expert witness, the doctor, um, craters on the stand after being found out to have had a felony and have lied about it, um, the thought was that the case was over. Jake actually leaves the courtroom that day and just drives to another county and is MIA for like eight hours. So, because he thinks it's completely over. So Thoen Carly on the stand was like a sort of Hail Mary. And I think the book better sets that up and even goes into Jake's mind that this could be real bad. You don't do this. You do not put criminal defendants on the stand. They don't have to. The other side can't call them. You have a constitutional right to not have to provide testimony against yourself. You can be utterly silent in a courtroom and almost every criminal defendant does for good fucking reason because it means you can't be cross-examined or asked all these sorts of questions the other side can't bring in. So it is normally disastrously stupid to do this. But as you said, Jake's kind of at the end of his rope. His case is not going according to plan. He's getting increasingly desperate. So he tries to get this in as a last bolstering effort both for the insanity defense and just general sympathy. To summarize, how well does this go? Well, well, you know, obviously in the in the movie, it doesn't go well because, um, you know, you know, you have the seminal scene of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Where where you get Carly on the stand and, um, you know, he, he, he provides his brief testimony that Jake asked him to do, it's, et cetera, et cetera. But Rufus yeah. gets him. And when Rufus gets him, he starts asking, he starts badgering. I think he badgers the witness. I don't know if you're allowed to in cross-examination or not, but I think he does. And he just goes, did they deserve to die? Did they deserve to die? Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to show, Rufus is trying to show premeditation. He's trying to show that Carl Lee knew exactly what he was doing and he was killing the boys because the boys deserved to die. And he needed... He needed Carly to say, yes, they deserve to die. Well, he gets that more. He gets Carly yelling, yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell, which courtroom erupts. Jake, for the second time in like three days, drops his head in complete defeat, um, and Carly obviously uh, kind of lost his composure there. Now, yes. but here's the, here's the thing. Here's the kicker, and this is where I don't think that Rufus is seeing the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. Rufus thinks he's won there. But the thing is, is that Jake doesn't, if Jake is thinking logically, I think Lucian's the only one really thinking logically about the defense. Who gives a fuck? Like, it doesn't matter because they know, the jury knows that he wasn't insane. You're just trying to solicit sympathy for him and have them put that that, that square peg in that circle hole. Yeah. Now, during the course of the actual movie, we get to see the jury engaging in improper deliberations at several moments, like over dinner and whatever else. And the vote's not looking good for Jake, period, as is, really going into this moment. And the film really wants to make you believe that he is utterly sunk right now, right here. And so we get him having a conversation with Carl Lee in jail. Of where he basically is, he's been previously discussed this with Buckley, he's been previously discussed this with Noose, about they could potentially settle this case. That has been an option. As much as Buckley is an ass and has been pushing hard on this, He'd probably agree to a lesser charge if he can get the case done and done and resolved now. I was always astonished that Buckley went after murder one 
you know, put him on the put him in the death penalty. I, I always so thought that stupid. was so dumb. Yeah. It, it's Buckley working his political motivations. Buckley should have gotten uh, for first degree um, manslaughter. Yeah, th- this is very much a situation of where we've got Buckley just getting his political motivations ahead of his common sense. He totally... You can bring lesser charges at the same time as you bring murder one. You can bring murder one and voluntary manslaughter at the same damn time. You can give options to the jury about how they can pers- how they can do this. And he should have. He totally should have had a voluntary manslaughter. First degree probably be the best on there. You should have totally offered them from the front. Hey, he takes 10, he takes voluntary manslaughter, he gets convicted for 20, he's out in 10. And honestly, that probably would have been the fairest outcome to resolve this. I feel like least damaging outcome from the community. I feel like realistically, this probably never would have gotten to trial, right? They would have worked something out on a lesser charge. There would have been so much pressure on this prosecutor from his own bosses saying, can't let this go to trial. You can't, the community's going to explode. It's going to be disastrous. It's going to be negative press. We don't want that. We don't want to have to deal with the resources. Same thing, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Jake. We, we see a little bit in the film about this, you know, there's a lot of risk to your client, but there's a lot of risk to the community. Look at all the elements that are coming in here. We need to get this case resolved. We'll offer him a deal. We'll get this done quietly. This would have been a nightmare to bring to trial. As we see play out, and there'd be a lot of pressure to make sure that never happened, that let's get him off on voluntary manslaughter in some in some way, We'll get him, we'll get him, he'll go away to prison. He obviously is guilty, but we'll get him a lesser charge to do excusable circumstances. Let's get this done. But it wouldn't make for as entertaining a story if it resolved like that. But like, honestly, like just you, Spencer, the person looking at this situation, don't you think that's like, he's guilty right, of manual. that's the right outcome, right? For him to serve he, some time, but not like 30 years. And that's, we'll talk about it more in real, real lawyer, fake lawyer, but that's honestly what the main purpose of the temporary insanity defense is, is to get a lesser charge. It's not necessarily to be innocent. And okay. I think, I think the best, what he did here, I think is be, best described as voluntary manslaughter one, that he committed a conscious act. He committed a conscious killing. You can debate his motivations. You can debate the state of mind that he was put in. You can debate, essentially prompting in terms of why he did this, but he consciously, willingly, and with pleasure killed another person. That probably, in fairness, needs to be punished as vile as those people were for the sake of society, if nothing else. Yeah, but yeah. we're going to talk about that shit. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get that um, for sure. But he has a one, one of my favorite scenes in the film is he has a conversation with Samuel L. Jackson, with Carl Lee, in prison, of where Carl Lee basically tells him, I picked you on purpose because you're one of them. You know, you're a good guy. You don't want to be that background. You don't want to have that perspective, but you're always going to see me as the other. You're always going to see me as something different than you. And I wanted you to have that. I wanted you to be in their mindset. I wanted you to be one of them when you came in to represent me. I picked you for that purpose. I need you to be that guy. I need you to think for yourself what they would hear, what you want to hear that would get me off. And I need you to tell them that. It's a very powerful scene. It's a very great moment. As a lawyer, I'm dying inside seeing that kind of advice to attorney and him act on that advice. But it's a very powerful scene. And we get a scene then setting up before it's time for summation. Uh, We get Luther deliver... Rufus Buckley deliver very much the summation that he needs. To you just you just roll a deck scene like the pompous white lawyer names Luther, Luther Rufus. Rufus. <laughs> yes, sorry, <laughs> man, that was Freudian. Um, 
he delivers a very much by the number summation. It's effective enough in terms of what he wants to represent about his case, but he's obviously guilty. You know he's not insane. You know he murdered him, as vile as these kids are. Society demands that you punish him. It's the exact summation that he has to deliver. It's a pretty good closing argument from Rufus, I think. Yes, I think he should have emphasized more and gone at more admitting what these guys are, but how much and important it is that he can't, he, the murder occurred, you're here to try a murder, and society depends on there not being acts or vent. I think he should have gone into that more, particularly with what ultimately results, but I think it's a very effective summation he still delivers. Jake then comes up and delivers something that is not in the book. This is nope. not in the book. I double-checked this. Nope. He delivers an elaborate summation, which has the purpose, a couple purposes. One, I'm a new attorney. Don't blame me for any mistakes that I've made. And then major point number two, put yourself in the mindset of, of Carl Lay. Think about what happened to the girl. Imagine each step of what occurred. And this is really our first true accounting of just how utterly horrific what occurred to her is. In a way I just can't even fully express. Terrible. Um, he goes through that, and it's a powerful scene. It's a very effective bit of uh, uh, it's a very effective bit of theater. And he close your eyes. Imagine each element of what occurred. Imagine each element of what happened. And now imagine that she's white. And it's a very powerful moment. It's a very effective moment. And I can't appreciate it anymore because I'm an attorney, and I would be immediately if I was uh, if I was Rufus, stand up and object. And I would immediately go to the bench, and I would immediately tell the judge that, Your Honor, he just straight up asked for jury nullification. You have to strike. You have to. You have to instruct the jury to strike everything that he just said that they cannot regard it, and you need to bring him up on sanctions right now. No question. No debate. That testimony is not, that summation is not going to go to the jury. They cannot factor that into their decision. And assuming that the case can even go forward, based on how and utterly prejudicial that is. To give Grisham credit, Grisham knew that could not come from Absolutely Jake. Absolutely That not. could not come from Jake. So I'll Expl contrast it with book. Explain this divide, because this is in one of the biggest changes, book to movie. In the, in, the in the book, Jake basically does the first half of what you see in the movie. He comes up and he does he does apologize for, you know, he explains, like, I put this guy on the, on the stand. I didn't know that he was a convicted felon. I didn't know he was lying. That, you know, he he does raise a very good point, which we're going to get to in Real, Real Lawyer Fake Lawyer, which is, you know, come, I mean, ask yourself, does that mean that everything the man says is is absolutely wrong? Probably not. But anyway, he, he kind of put, all put a that. pen in that. Let's definitely come back to that. And he and he he kind of sums up and just says, hey, you know, um, you know, I did my, basically I did my best here. You know, I, I hope you can find some sympathy for Carly. Boom. Done. Now, what all we up, can legally do. What ends up happening is it goes, you get, we introduce a new POV at the very end of the book, very George, George R. R. Martin in that way. New, new POV toward the end of the book, and it is from one of the jurors. And the jurors are deliberating some for some reason near the courthouse, which is stupid because they have 10,000 black people chanting and screaming, free Carl Lee, and you got 500 KKK people saying, burn Carl Lee. And they can hear it. They're hearing it all the time. And they are a hung jury. They are. There's a few people on the jury that are just obstinate. That they they are not going to vote Carly guilty. Now, the majority of people on the the jury when they first start are saying that Carly is guilty. That they they're gonna they're gonna vote for that. It's like seven to three or seven to four or something. Yeah. Um, and a, the the POV that we get is not the foreman, not the jury foreman, just some woman, middle aged woman, who stands up and goes. Okay, looks like we're hung. Before we tell the judge that we're hung, 
They're which about be, to which, walk out. Which until be a mistrial the and retrial and all this. They're, they're hung. That they can't come to an agreement. They're just. This has been days. They're about to yes. tell the judge. She says, "Humor me," and she does the exercise that Jake does in the courtroom, where she says, "Close your eyes and imagine." Mm-hmm. And when she's done with her speech, the POV chapter ends, and the next thing we get is the kid running through the courtroom, going out to the crowd, screaming, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. So they condensed it. They made Jake do it in the movie, which, as you pointed out, Jake really couldn't do it. So it's kind of like a dumb thing to do. But I guess what they were saying is like it was going to be hard for them to introduce this the dynamics with the jury and make it as dramatic. It, it, it would be, It's much more dramatic to have it come from Jake. It gives him a bigger role in the case that the film is otherwise taken away from him because the film otherwise makes Jake kind of look like a doofus in terms of overall his, car- his carrying of the case, which is not fair. And it also gives much more agency to Carl Lee in terms of directly bringing this about. So from a filmmaking standpoint, I utterly understand it. It's a very effective bit of filmmaking that could not happen in court. On the other hand, the jury just thinking of that shit, jury proceedings are sacrosanct. You can't know what occurred and could there is no yeah. record. That can totally happen. That does happen. It's improper. It absolutely should not occur from a legal standpoint. It's every attorney's and judge's nightmare. But that's why we honestly have juries. This, this kind of moment's going to occur, I guess. Yeah, she just swings. She swings the seven who are who are going to vote guilty for Carly by introducing race. Um, and there you go. Boom. You have not guilty. Well, you have, he's innocent in the film, which I don't like. I actually prefer Neil not guilty because they don't declare somebody innocent. But they say that they say innocent in the film. He's innocent. He's innocent. That's what the kid yells at and says. Like that is not what the jury said. If they did, the judge no, asked I, them to in the in the book, ruling. he's he's screaming not guilty, not guilty. Right. Which yeah. which is, which is not only is a more powerful call for me than anyway. He's innocent. Always just sounds weird. Um, but he is found not guilty. Uh. Majority of the crowd, 90% of the crowd reacts great, 10% acts not great, but we get to see a certain measure of confidence when it comes to that small element of the crowd of where Ozzy has been on the warpath and now knows some of the guys that have been directly responsible for some of the things that have occurred. And arrests Kiefer Sutherland, who, in the course of the film, served as a sniper for at least this, what was going to be the first of at least two times in his, probably more than that, with also 24, movie-making career. Um... <laughs> He also, if you've ever seen Phone Booth, it's actually pretty good, and he serves as a sniper in that, too. He also, knows his way around a sniper knife. He does. Uh, but he is arrested along with the other deputy, which apparently Ozzy has found out about him, too. Does not happen in the book. Deputy does not. walks. Deputy walks. Because Ozzy doesn't know. Um, we get that degree of resolution, apparently because they decided it was temporary insanity, and despite the fact that all, basically, psychiatric witness testimony was found irrelevant, uh, he just walks without going to a psychiatric facility and just walks out. Which is fucking phenomenal, right? Like, does not occur. No, even with temporary insanity arguments, you typically at least have to spend a certain period of time in a psychiatric facility to make sure that you are sane now. But, sure, filmmaking, we're we're streamlining this. Um, It's almost as like everyone's just on the same page about, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, fuck it, let's just forget this ever happened, yeah. We, We prefer this to be done. And that resolves... You know, Jake's family's come back. His wife has provided key support. They're going to rebuild their house. But we end with a key moment of where Carly is back with his family. Um, and he's having food with them. And Jake and his family show up. And there's a certain healing of racial wounds kind of moment in terms of them inviting to break bread together. Um, yeah, because Carly in that scene in jail talking to Jake right before the end of his trial says, Come on, Jake. We're not the same. 
Yeah. You know, your our kids are never going to play together. Jake seems genuinely hurt by that in both the book yeah. and the film. And he shows up and he says, he tells Carly, I think our kids should play together. Yeah. It's a, it's a powerful moment. Carly literally referred to him as one of the bad guys during yeah. the course of the conversation. It's rough. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I love that the film broadens is Roar kind of disappears from the story after her attack, I think, in the book. I don't really remember her playing much of a role going forward. She's in, she's in, still in the hospital when the, she's when, the, when it comes down. Yeah, when the jury, when the jury it, comes down. She is in the hospital still in the film, but I love that she's able to have a conversation with Jake, and I love we get to see her reaction in the in the film. It's part of her brought and expanding as a character in the film, which I liked to a certain degree. Um, and effectively, that's it. We have wrapped we have wrapped up the film. Uh, are there any other additional changes, book to film, that you'd like to discuss before we get into? Um, Opinions and real lawyer, fake lawyer. Gosh, I feel like I, I put a pin in one. Um, so I think that um, the character of Harry Harry Rex Vonner is not, um, while the actor Oliver Platt who plays him in the it's Oliver Platt, right? That's his name. Yeah, Oliver Platt. Um, yeah. yeah, who plays him is really good. I think he's underused in the in the they, movie. He is um, as important as Ellen is to the defense. In the movie, um, Harry is in the book. I mean, he is with Jack, Jake every step of the way. He he's doing it for free, by the way, and he's a practicing attorney. He doesn't even doesn't even ask for anything from Jake to do this. He's there morning, noon, and night with Jake. He's in the courtroom watching the jury from different angles. He is uh, he is invaluable to Jake and uh, also a really good character. And if you ever go on to read. Um, Sycamore Row or A Time for Mercy. I think that um, John Grisham got the notes that Harry Rex was was an MVP type caliber character, and he mm-hmm. expands the character a lot, which is a lot of fun it, in the later books. He very similar to Rainmaker. He kind of serves like a Deck Shiflet kind of role of where yeah. he's he's the one that's providing a lot of the key advice. He's the one that's in many ways more experienced than Jake and has this kind of perspective. A lot of that is cut out of the film. We get, main thing we get is that he's always present in the film and providing like emotional support. He's the one that talks to Jake after Jake's house borns down. But the main bit of legal advice he provides is that I think the film suggests, I think the film indicates that he's the one that suggests to Roark to go to the psychiatrist's office to get the information the the way that she does. Uh, second thing I'd point out difference is that in the book, Grisham takes great pains to show that these characters, um, if they're not alcoholics, they abuse out. I mean, everyone is drunk a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot. Yeah. I mean, like he goes into detail that how long they drink. They're up till three, four in the morning nights before court. Lucian is drunk in the courtroom. I mean, it's just, a, it, you know, it is a, it is a bender, uh, for all, all considered. Definitely. That is a key aspect of the book that is only kind of tangentially referenced really here. And then, of course, the, the prevalent use of the N-word in the book that is that is not necessarily um, carried over in the film. Uh, just, just I keep mentioning it just because if you want to read the book, I, I recommend you read the book. It's just going to you're going to have to put it down a time or two if you're like me, where I was like, whoa, that, that, that word's being used a lot. All right. Well, Let's go into overall thoughts. I kind of expressed at the start what my thoughts book to film were. What are yours, sir? I'm curious. I'm going to say that if you have the ability to intake either one of these pieces of media, I will go with the book every single time. Um, this is one of those those cases where it is not a bad film. It's a good film. Yep. 
but it is not necessarily a great adaptation of the book and it certainly is not as enjoyable to intake as a piece of media as the book is the book goes into a lot of detail about what the characters are thinking i mean obviously you're gonna get that in the book but it also gets into a lot more about the legal proceeding um, there's a whole thing about discovery that gets brought up um, that's a lot of fun um, so i would just say you know if you're if you're into this sort of page turner legal thriller courtroom procedural Check out the book. I like. I, I give the book a nine and a half. I give the movie an eight. I would. I would probably give the film uh, six and a half, seven. I'm a, I think I'm a little bit more critical of it than you, but I, I agree pretty strongly with the book. It is an excellent book. I have some quibbles and qualms about certain moral comments that it makes that we'll discuss here in a second. Um, but it is a. It is a hell of an effective page turner and very effective. Not only. Not only just you know action drama but legal thriller in a way that it plays out very well that I don't think we really get as much in the film. But getting into real lawyer, fake lawyer, I think one thing we just have to start as just a general ethical question. How do you feel? What message do you think the, 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 both the book and the movie are trying to give us on what the moral, whether the outcome of this is morally justified in terms of how things resolve? I think that you and I are on a, on the same page here. I think that both the, the book and the movie start from the moral premise that what Carly did, did was justified and that he is somehow a sympathetic figure. He's a hero that we should be rooting for. And we're supposed to erupt in cheers when he is innocent, innocent film, not guilty, not guilty book. I'm just gonna, I'm here for you, folks. I'm just going to I'm going to tell you exactly my thoughts on this. Preach, man. 50 pages into this book, I had the thought, wow, Grisham is setting us up to be sympathetic to Carly Haley. And I am not. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. You can. I mean, hey, look, like, nobody's a big fan of Rufus Buckley or Kevin Spacey. But I'm telling you that he's right. You cannot take the law in your own hands in this situation, especially when you consider the context. It's not like they were getting off. No, it's not that's, like they. It's not like justice detail. wasn't being served. Justice was being served. Everything was going. I mean, after the crime, everything within the judicial system was moving forward appropriately and at an appropriate pace. And I believe fully that they were going to be punished for their actions. What he did was out of bounds, and he should have been punished for it. And the fact that he writes Grisham writes him as a sympathetic character says a lot about what. Grisham thinks, um, and his, you know, his own morality. Um, and I also think it's, uh, it's interesting that the, probably the majority of people bought into that, bought into that angle. But I, I certainly thought that Crawley should have been punished for what he did. What'd you think? I, I, I would be perfectly fine with, and probably agree with giving him a lesser punishment based on the circumstances, based on what occurred and based on what his particular motivations were. I think that's within perfectly prosecutorial discretion and would be, Reasonable re reading of the tea leaves by the prosecutor is just the risk of taking the case to trial about where everybody's mindset is going to be in anyway. But I think he needed some degree of punishment. Um, I think finding him not guilty for what he did and having is him a, walk is 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 ultimately a miscarriage of justice that's going to have negative it's going to have ne negative negative repercussions. Um, and I think some of those repercussions are even really shown out in the, both the film and the book itself. I think John Grisham, I think John Grisham effectively kind of has it both ways. That's where I think he morally agrees with Carl Lee. I think all of his characters morally agree with Carl Lee. 
Uh, I think that they all basically agree with him on the mindset that they would want the vengeance too, and that for, therefore makes it right what he did. But at the same time, he also depicts what effect that vengeance has on the characters, on the family, on the community, on just everyone and everything in this story as a result of what occurred. That if he had let justice go go through and go through and occur in the way that it was seemingly indicating was going to occur, a lot of this wouldn't have happened. His family wouldn't have lost a father. He wouldn't have lost a job. People would, more people wouldn't have died or been hurt. The community wouldn't have been just so thoroughly broken apart into pieces. A lot of that potentially could have been avoided. The issue that Carl Wheel would respond there about, and that I think our writer responds about as well, is though that the idea that they would have gotten 10 to 20 years for what they did wasn't sufficient. That only their death could pay for what they did. And I, A, I'm opposed to the death penalty period anyway. So Me that too. kind of helps inform us. I think Grishan's tip in his hand that he supports the death penalty, right? I, well, I think I think Jake's speaking for him a little bit there. Yeah, I agree. Um, no, I think we're on the same page. So I think that like it's it's interesting that how much I enjoyed the the book, but mm-hmm. it starts from a a moral center that is not my own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, further question: Real real lawyer, fake lawyer? I'll ask you one. Real lawyer, fake lawyer. Yeah, I'll ask you one. You can ask me one. We can go from there. But. Um, how do you feel about the concept of jury nullification and the role that it plays in the story, both in Jake's motivations and how the jury ultimately acts on it? Uh, explain your question a little bit more. Jury nullification is the idea that regardless of what the legal issues are presented, regardless of what the legal standards that the jury must reach based on the evidence are, that the jury is free to decide for itself what it feels is right uh, and just act on that. It's effectively using the jury as an illegal institution to just decide what those 12 people feel is just and that have that govern the law. And as we talked about, at no point did they actually think that their client was insane or think that, that defense would actually be legally merited. But they thought that they could use it as a justification for the jury to decide what they thought was right and to play on the jury's personal beliefs and personal desire for revenge in similar circumstances to get them to sympathize with the accused and get them to rule in his favor. So how do you I would feel? say that yeah. I don't, I think that it, I, so I'm not sure that this could ever play out this way in real life for all the reasons that you mentioned. Yeah. During all the say certainly that, can happen. It always, it often does, but, but not necessarily in this way. Yeah. But, but, my, but, but if it could, or in some, some version of it, I think that that's a, that's a, I'm not saying I can fix it. I don't know the answer, but I think that's a flaw in the legal system that, that something like this could occur because um, yes, you need to be judged by a jury. Your peers, I get that. And yes, the jury should have, you know, wide discretion, but being able to just say, well, sure, let's go with insanity, even though we all know he's not insane because we think that his, the killing was justified, I think is a miscarriage of justice. And it's a, it's a flaw in the legal system. And I think that it probably scares the shit out of a lot of lawyers who want to go work as like, you know, uh, district attorneys because they're probably like, holy shit, like, you know, Rufus Buckley, all warts and all proved his case. And the jury should have gone back there and found Carly guilty, but they didn't because they just didn't want to. And that that is a flaw. That's a That's a flaw in the legal system, well, I think. What do you what's I, your take? Well, it's notable that most other Western countries don't have juries anymore for criminal proceedings. That we're one of the few that still even employ juries for that purpose. So did you do judges only? Yep. 
because they don't count on untrained people that have no knowledge of the law or any prior expertise in terms of litigating cases to be able to rationally decide legal rulings. Well, when you put um, it that way, <laughs> I kind of kind of sounds reasonable. I'm it? a def- I'm a defense attorney, so that kind of factors in that I have a net pretty negative view when it comes to juries anyway, but. Uh, it is a constitutional institution. It's viewed on the idea that the public itself should play a role in the judicial process and that you ultimately should be judged by your peers and by, your, by, by, by the fellow citizens of your community. And I fully understand those motivations. But as they can play out, is this, film, is this book and film like to essentially flaunt? It gives them a, a power to ignore the law effectively in the end, and less to the degree that the, that the other side is able to sustain a motion to a motion for a judgment notwithstanding the verdict, which the, effectively the judge can also do. Um, but you're, do you have a question for me? Yes. I'm going to give you a fake lawyer Please. take. This is my fake lawyer take. Um, this is not going to be said uh, with sound legal vocabulary, and it probably won't track. But I don't care. I'm saying it anyway. Go on, man. I find this to be completely ridiculous oh. that a man, a man could get on the stand and simply because he had a felony 20 years earlier and he, well, let's end it there. Simply because he had a felony 20 years mm-hmm. earlier somehow discredits everything he could say, despite the fact he has gone on to be a very prominent, um, uh, you know, employer in that or a member of that that particular scientific field. He Absolutely. Is, he's had a great career. He's obviously knowledgeable by every objective measurement. And simply because he had a felony a bajillion years ago. Um, that somehow erases every bit of his testimony. And I will go further with my fake lawyer take here. Go on, If man. you get on the stand and you tell a little white lie, I don't think that should necessarily 100% immediately shut the door on it, close the testimony, cl- you know, close the door on anything else you said. Now, could it? Sure. Depends mm-hmm. on the lie. Depends on, depends on what else, what other testimony you gave and what other background or experience or uh, expertise you have to give that testimony, right? Mm-hmm. It all should be contextual. But I don't like the idea that somebody gets on the stand and one, simply because they were they were felon and got convicted of a felony at some point in their history, or two, because they were caught in a lie at some point during their testimony, we have to throw everything they say out. I don't mm-hmm. like that. And I'll actually, I fully will agree with you, sir. I embrace your rage when it comes to this particular moment. I think the way this plays out as it did in the film is that it is a result of Jake getting surprised. That Jake did not know this and wasn't prepared to address it. This could have been handled a lot better by his side if they had framed it better. That if they had openly talked about it and gotten it in themselves and addressed it on their own terms... The other side then couldn't really talk about it, and that would and that would that could have mooted the issue. If they just asked him about, it, have you ever been previ- have you ever been previously convicted of felony? Yes, many years ago I was convicted of statutory rape. And then if he'd gotten in the testimony that he got that he previously apparently brought up for the first time on summation, which he can't do anyway, about so how old was she actually? Oh, she was seventeen, and you married her after the fact, and you were with her after the fact, and all those things he brings in on summation, all those undermine that anyway. And effectively, with respect to this anyway, you also could have argued in pretrial, if you wanted to, that felonies can, are often framed as if they are inherently crimes of dishonesty. But what is literally most most to be used for impeachment and be relevant in terms of undermining somebody's testimony is if that felony inherently is one that involves dishonest acts. Statutory rape by its nature doesn't. It's not no. one that involves oh. a motive. It's not one that involves any degree of mens rea. It's a, 
it's it, it is an offense that the moment of you're committing it, the moment you are guilty of it, regardless of your mindset or knowledge that you went into it. So Jake could have done a lot with this and could have done a lot better with it in terms of both minimizing it or even pre, even potentially excluding it, uh, but certainly rehabilitating him after the fact. The problem is, is that he didn't know it and he had no opportunity to prep, and so it plays out worse than it inherently could have, it inherently should have. I've straight up had expert witnesses that have previously been convicted of felonies. They've provided testimony. They've provided compelling testimony. But I knew their history and I was able to address it correctly. Jake here wasn't able to. And so it plays out worse than necessarily had to. My levels of rage are like the first level where I think it's like everybody should probably agree with me is just the point you made is that like if you just because you're a felon doesn't mean you can't get on the stand and provide expert testimony or testimony of any kind. Yeah. But the lie when he lied about it on the stand that's where that's the problem i'm still i'm still i still would would i still am on the corner of that shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. you can still take some of his testimony i think just being a reasonable person but i can see that argument a lot better than than the felon argument right like i i see how when he lied on the stand that's much more of a problem or should be much more of a problem than the fact that you had a felony 25 years ago. Which is why Rufus Buckley plays it out so perfectly. Because it's a strict liability crime. It doesn't involve dishonesty. It occurred years in the past. It's irrelevant to his testimony. But he does lie. And he asks it in a way that he sets him up to lie. And then he can bring it all in. And the fact that it's statutory rape, people immediately hear statutory rape and they immediately look at you as... Well, you're a rapist. I can never trust you again. Yeah, but 20, necessarily... 23 and 17? Uh, again, it's a strict liability crime. It's literally just under the age of consent. It's not going into circumstances of where even the other side could have lied or exaggerated their age. It's a very interesting kind of offense anyway. But people don't look at it that way. That's the reason he's so per- the Rufus Buckley so perfectly sets it up to make it look worse than it is and to make the circumstances in his lie look worse than they necessarily should be interpreted by the jury to be. Final real lawyer fake lawyer for you. Have Please. you ever heard of a situation in real life, I'm going to say firsthand, not something you read in the paper, but firsthand, where a defense attorney is as closely in bed with the fucking sheriff or the law and local law enforcement as Jake is. I find that to be like something that like Grisham introduces casually. We, we love Ozzy. I mean, shout out Ozzy. I would yep. vote for him 100% team Ozzy, but it's, if you think of it objectively, it is appalling how much Ozzy uh, colludes with Jake and the defense in this trial. It is definitely a thing. And oddly enough, and I think this is almost purposeful on Grisham's part, it's most famous occurring in the opposite way of a white sheriff helping out a white accused who just killed a black guy. Of where that's historical as shit and happened all the damn time in the South and was part of the problem that... We had to put it in federal civil rights laws to ensure that some of these guys were actually prosecuted for, you know, Mississippi burning kind of shit. So they went to federal court. Yeah, yeah. So I I think that was almost purposeful on his part to frame it from the opposite perspective of where it's a black sheriff and a black accused having killed white guys and portraying it as that kind of bias, but working in some ways in the opposite direction. So I think I, I almost... That is so purposely stylized and occurring in the South, I have to almost believe that Grisham purposely set it up to, con- to kind of conjure back to those kind of moments. Okay, that makes sense. But man, when I, you know, I just, I'm reading it and it's kind of like frog in boiling water for me because I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, that's that particular action makes sense. That particular, and then I get to the end and I'm like, you know what? Ozzy was kind of crooked. <laughs> yeah, Ozzy was playing fast and loose when it came to the rules. But everybody was in this story. Nobody comes out of this story clean, particularly in the book. Everybody, everybody is 
flirting with dishonorable practices just for different motives, motives and whether it's for their own personal advancement or what they just honestly believe is right. Um, question from me. And this, this is very much a question of just, you know, how you've experienced it in, pre, in, your pre, in previous readings to John Grisham and your own forays with the law and your own just watching of media. But what do you feel about the concept of a temporary insanity defense in terms of how it is shown here and how it, how, how it plays out and merged even how you understand it? Um, so my, my, as a fake lawyer, my understanding yes. of it is that it, sh it is a defense that is used, um, way, way more than it should. And it's not used all that often. Um, it should be very, very narrow in scope, like, mm. a, like spectacular, like, like surgically narrow in scope when this should be able to be used. I don't think you should completely remove it from being codified as like a, an actual, like, you know, defense. Mm -hmm. I think it should be there, but it needs to be severely limited in scope. I mean, like the numbers should be like two people fucking got off on that in like the last 10 years. It should be that narrow. And I think that what, what Jake Berjance did is took that, that surgically small scope and just put in a massive, you know, a mover and just had that thing just widen and widen and widen so you could drive a fucking truck through it. And that's what he did. I personally, if I'm on the jury, um, in order for me to vote for something like that, I mean, I need to know that this person broke with reality, had no idea what they were doing, what they did it, and now either have no memory of it or have limited memory of it. And so I'm going to need to, you're going to need to prove that the person um, is multiple personality, which probably doesn't exist, or like a schizophrenic or something like that. It can't just be like, it can't just be like you, Spencer, got really, really mad and therefore you were temporarily insane. But, like, they can't but dude, he needed to die and you need to help me provide cover of the fact the guy needed to die. Exactly. And that's what, that's what Jake was doing. Widening that thing, driving well, a truck right through it. But that's my understanding of temporary defense. Well, it, it's one of those... Or insanity. Yeah. I mean, insanity defenses in general are a lot rarer than you otherwise normally see portrayed in media. I mean, if you watched Law and Order, you'd think insanity defenses were used every other Sunday. As they even say in this case, they're pretty damn rare yeah. know, in terms of people even bringing them up, much, much less than being successful. They also come in a lot of different forms. Uh, what we see here is called the M. Naughton, a form of insanity defense. Uh, which is old. It's, it's, it's a very old for, a version of it. Which basically stands for the idea that you've got a mental disease or defect and that as a result, you either could not perceive right from wrong or you did not actually know what you were doing at the given moment. That's how that defense plays out. That's not necessarily the most common defense anymore. The model penal code's more built around capacity. And it's not the only defense. It's also one that's called the irresistible impulse test. There's a lot of different ways you can do this based on state law and they vary a lot. Not every state even allows you to do a temporary version of that. Some states say, no, 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 this needs to be a permanent condition that we need to actively now treat so that you don't ongoing be a threat. This isn't something that can just emerge on a given on, kinda on, make, on kinda a makes certain sense. day. Um, many states do, though, in various forms and usually comes in two ways. The most famous, the oldest form is, I walked into my house, my wife was there and another man, I went into a blind rage and I shot them both. That's kind of coming off the irresistible impulse thing. Usually that version wasn't used to say you should be not guilty. It's usually used to say, we don't condone what you did, but we understand what, what kind of mindset you were in, so we're going to punish you less for that happening. That kind of thing. That usually requires it to have been a surprise, it had to occur in the moment. And honestly, it's very controversial anyway, because from a certain perspective, it was certain kind of the Western way of condoning honor killings for a long yeah, damn time. Yeah, that's kind of what it feels like, yeah. 
So that's always been controversial anyway. So that's one form. The other form is very much kind of similar to how we show here, just, you know, with a little bit more actual foundation for it, is that due to a certain course of events leading up to that moment, you either suffered a mental break or you were put into such a, such a situation of where you no longer had the capacity to really rationally perceive your actions anymore. One of those famous examples of that was Lorena Bobbitt. You remember that one? Yep. Every man does. Every man does. Uh, during her case, she brought, in, she brought in evidence and provided testimony that he was abusive, that he had raped her. That he raped her just the night, like the day or hours before what she actually did. Hours she, before, yeah. That she was a battered spouse. This kind of set up the concept of the battered spouse defense, which is its own issues to discuss. And that effectively in that moment, she no longer was really rational control of her actions anymore. She suffered from this. The test they employed there was the irresistible impulse that she had an irresistible impulse that she could not stop due to what occurred to her. And so it naturally flowed. And so she should not be blamed for her actions. It's notable that if she'd been in other jurisdictions, they would not have employed that test. And she probably would have still been convicted because irresistible impulse is a lower test, but it's under that idea that due to this kind of psychological trauma that's been inflicted upon you that you could no longer fully and effectively control yourself or could no longer effectively convey right from wrong. And so understanding that we're going to find you not guilty, even though you no longer suffer from that. It's controversial. It's not easy to do. It plays out differently in different jurisdictions, but it does exist. It's just not very common. And it often requires very different circumstances from here. And part of the reason it came in for that one in particular is that the theory from the psychologist that battered spouses don't act the same way we would expect with the first version of the defense I mentioned, of where it's a spur-of-the-moment kind of thing, of where he's coming at you and you shoot him, or you think he's coming at you and you shoot him, they would wait until he was asleep, they'd wait until he was in bed, they'd wait until he was no longer an imminent threat, and then they'd murder him. So there's no argument for justifiable homicide. And so he's trying to explain that kind of mindset that would lead to that. It's controversial. The, the, there, is no, there is no battered spouse syndrome in the DSM. A lot of the understanding of that case have now been disagreed with, with in terms of how a battered spouse necessarily acts. Doesn't mean necessarily that her defense was wrong, though. Just that it was... There's now different and expanded views upon it in that case. But in, in wrap-up, it does exist. It plays out uniquely in each jurisdiction. And I think it's honestly overrepresented in the media for how common it really is. Yeah, that's my understanding, too. But I, I think it just needs to be super narrow in scope. Um, and obviously, this is not a situation where... It no. should be employed. No. Um, and, you know, but, you know, it's a good thing. Uh, in summation, uh, Your Honor, it is a good thing uh, that Carly Haley did not have one Lee or Spencer on said jury because <laughs> man would not have been walking out of there well, without at least a little bit of time. Final question for me, if you, have, if you have one more minute. Sure do. Would you, if you had been in this context, want to kill those guys? Would I have wanted to kill them? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I would have. I don't. I don't know... Um, I've never, never had someone that close to me have something, uh, that horrific happen to them in such an evil way. So I've, I've never had, I've never experienced this. I don't know what I would feel. Um, I would say that if I wanted to kill them or not, I hope what I would do is immediately, um, seek to forgive. Cause I think that's, that, that's just how I, I try to live my life. I would try mm -hmm. to, uh, I would try to forgive them. Um, and, and, you know, like pray for them or think whatever your, your religion is or get, send good thoughts their way. That's what I would try to do. Um, but I would, I would argue that it's, it's patently irrelevant if I would want to kill them or not. 
um, you shouldn't go kill them. And, and there, we need to have institutional controls so that people don't do those things. And if it does happen, there needs to be some sort of consequence for it. How about you? I, like you, I've never been, I thank God I've never been in that circumstance to ever have to confront that kind of situation, to ever have to help a person that has gone through that in that particular way after it has occurred. I can imagine I would want to hurt them. I can imagine that would be a purely human impulse to want to hurt them. Though, as you noted, I think that ultimately my personality is going to play out along the lines of recognizing that and then recognizing how much I don't, I should not be a part of that process in terms of prosecuting or dealing with them then. That I think that I ultimately would be able, I, I can't know, but I think I'll ultimately be able to process it along the lines of that nothing good can come from me hurting them in any way, and it will probably only make things worse. That let the law play out how the law is going to play out and take part and support however you can in that regard. That's going to be the stronger and more difficult thing anyway. Um, but... Ultimately, me playing a, low, playing a role in that retribution can have no productive effect on either me, the victim, society, anything, I don't think. And, you know, um, obviously feelings of, of, of rage and anger in that situation are, are uh, natural. And I would say that uh, I don't know this situation, never been in it. But I will say, um, to the extent you can, always forgive. It's always better for you if you can, you can forgive the other person. It if is you can. It is the harder course, though. It is one that we've lit we literally have a Christ figure for the purpose of representing that because of how hard it is for humanity to accept that concept. Agreed, but that's always in your your own self-interest. It's always better to forgive. Okay, what a pod, Spencer. We have we have blown through a time to kill. A time to kill is the the obviously the the benchmark, the cornerstone for John Grisham's catalog. I'm glad we did it. I if people enjoyed this podcast, if they enjoyed the movie, if they enjoyed the book. I tell you, go out and read Sycamore Row. Go out and read um, A Time for Mercy. My understanding is there's a chance they're going to make a movie on A Time for Mercy. Matthew McConaughey apparently is down. He, he wants to do it. So that would be really, really cool if they ended up doing A Time for Mercy as a, as a movie, maybe like a Netflix thing or something. Um, that would be great. Uh, Spencer, do you want to do Pelican Brief next? I'm down for it. All right. I think we're going to do Pelican Brief next. Man, what a fun pod. I'm really enjoying blowing through these Grisham novels with you uh, and adaptations with you. Uh, Spencer, do you want to tell the folks what we're actually going to do after we do Grisham? I would, but in this given moment, I have completely forgotten the name of the show. <laughs> oh, I'm with you. So what we're going to do is between now and the premiere of this of the next uh, show we're going to do, we're going to keep doing John Grisham adaptations. I hope we get to A Time to Kill and the firm. I think that's probably where we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. We'll probably do four, um, but we are going to follow. This is a an announcement. Thank you for sticking with us this far. I probably should have put it at the top. But this is an announcement for Mangum Talks Television. We are going to do a week by week recap of the newly premiering HBO show The Nevers. Mm -hmm. It is a Joss Whedon vehicle, um, and Ish. it is a, a yeah. He's out on it now, but he, he created it. Um, and it is a, it's a fantasy. It's wheelhouse for, for Lee and Spencer. It's a fantasy. It's a new world for us to, to get into. And we're going to do week-by-week week recaps of The Nevers, which you can find on HBO Max. I'm looking forward to it, sir. But more than anything, I'm also looking forward to a couple more weeks of John Grisham with you. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for, for hanging in there with us. You can check out all our pods at mangumtalks.com. We're also on Captivate. We're on Ghana. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We're everywhere you get your podcasts. We appreciate you listening. Until next time, see you.